You've got the, the formal introduction and background in your program, and our debate format is, is really semi-formal, and I think our attitude will be uh, a little bit relaxed as well. Both uh, Mr. Ali and, and Mr. Lacona uh, like being referred to as Mike and Shabir, okay? My name's Gordon. Uh, tell a person beside you what your name is, okay? So they're not sitting with strangers. Tell them, just, just tell them what your name is. Good. All right. Again, we have a semi-formal structure, and you'll see the outline there in your program. We'll plan to follow that. And from time to time, especially when we get to the crossfire, I may get involved a little bit in just trying to help keep things on track. Both of the speakers have given me permission to do that. And let me tell you about a strange experience for me last night. As I, for the, uh, the first time, walked through Norfolk International Airport uh, with a Muslim imam by my side. Aha. Uh -huh. That tension was amazing. Just as we were, I'd never experienced anything like that from the inside of walking through the airport. And I'd, I'd like to encourage you to uh, try to move beyond some of the stereotypes that we have created as Christians, as non-Muslims, and I'm sure that uh, you Muslim guests among us will not have to worry about that and dealing with that, but Mr. Ali here uh, kind of represents the typical Arab, I think, in some ways, don't you? Don't you? Like, yeah. yeah, except he was, he was born in South America, okay? His, his parents were born in South America, uh, in, in Guyana, okay? He's been in Canada for the last 25 years, and he's not of Arab extraction. He's from great-great-great-great-grandparents, India, okay? So imagine that. He's born in South America. There are millions and hundreds of millions of Muslims all over the world, and we've kind of fixated and been traumatically fixated by some incidents like 9-11. Let me encourage you to move way beyond that and to meet Shabir as a person, listen to him as a person, his points of view, and Mike, and see these guys. They have very real, distinct, important differences, okay? And those differences are a big part of what tonight is all about, very important. But they also uh, have some things in common in regard to humanity and, and all of that. And I'd encourage you to uh, look at these folks as people and persons first and then listen to what they have to say, not only with your head, but also with your heart. Listen with your heart. As an instructor, I know that the best mode of learning is relaxed attentiveness, okay? Relaxed attentiveness. And it's, uh, if this is a first kind of experience for you in these kind of Muslim-Christian dialogues, you, there may be a little bit of tension, and let me encourage you just to leave that aside. And as you start listening to these gentlemen, I think, You'll get beyond it quite quickly and quite easily, but let me encourage you, even from the beginning, to do that. Now, because we are a Christian university, allow me to uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we will enter into the opening statement, which you have in the order here of your uh, program. Mike Lacona will be giving that, and then an opening statement by uh, Mr. Shabir Ali. 
Father God, you are good, and we are grateful. Your goodness is expressed in so many ways, and we are grateful. We thank you for the creation of this earth. We thank you for the people and the diversity of people that you have placed on this planet, our home, earth. But Father, as we consider your truths and your revelation, as we consider faith and obedience to you, I ask that your spirit will draw us into truth, will lead us, will illumine our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. And may we listen, listen with all of who we are, not only to each other, but to you. For this I pray in Christ's powerful name, amen. Mike, I guess you're up first. Good evening. It's great to be with you this evening. Can you all hear me? Is Mike on? Hello. There we go. Good evening. It's great to be with you, and I'd like to thank Regent University for hosting tonight's debate. I would also like to thank Mr. Shabir Ali and his organization for inviting me to debate him. Uh, Mr. Ali is certainly a very experienced debater and is perhaps uh, certainly one of the most articulate ambassadors of Islam today. So in light of this, I think we're in for an enjoyable time this evening as we explore the evidence for an answer to the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now for me, this is one of the most interesting as well as important topics for discussion. And let me explain why. About 20 years ago, I was in graduate school specializing in the study of New Testament Greek and planning on going into the ministry. And at that time, I believed that I had a very intimate relationship with God. But I started to wonder, is this really the truth? Or was I self-deluded? So I decided to take a step back from my position of confidence and to ask some of the tough questions. And when I did that, I, I was just praying, and God, lead me. And I started to look at all the evidence for Christianity and considering the evidence for the other religions and also considering the arguments for atheism. And after several years, the personal uh, conclusion that I came to was that what I had initially believed had been revealed to me by God's Holy Spirit had now been confirmed from and by philosophy, science, and history. Namely, that God exists and that he has actually revealed himself to mankind in Jesus Christ and that Christianity is true. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection at that point was strongly compelling to me and led me, uh, largely led me to that decision. Now, the reason... Jesus' resurrection is so important is because the truth of Christianity hinges on this event. Jesus' atoning death and resurrection have been bedrock doctrines for Christianity since its inception. Therefore, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the foundation collapses and Christianity is false. The Apostle Paul himself wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. On the other hand, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it seems that there's good reason for believing that Christianity is true. And that gives us something we're all gonna to have to think about. You see, I don't think it's sufficient to say, well, the evidence is good for resurrection, but I just can't believe it because my worldview doesn't allow it. Well, if that's a position you find yourself in, it may be time to find another worldview. That's why this evening's debate is much, much more than an academic discussion. The eternal destiny of our souls may very well hinge on what we do with Jesus and his resurrection. So where do we begin? Historical Jesus research. The eminent historical Jesus scholar, John Meyer, uh, explains as follows. He says, 
Suppose we have a Jew, an agnostic, and a Christian. This is not a joke. <laughs> a Jew, an agnostic, and a Christian, all honest historians, all well acquainted with first century religious movements. And we lock them up at Harvard Divinity School Library and we tell them you can't come out until you have hammered out a consensus statement on what we can know about Jesus based on historical research only and apart from any faith or theological considerations. That resulting document would portray what scholars refer to as the historical Jesus. Now the real Jesus, the Jesus who walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee may have been much, much more than the Jesus portrayed in that document, but he's nothing less. So obviously tonight, I am not going to be presenting an argument that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. It's more rather like what Tom Cruise said in the movie, A Few Good Men. It doesn't matter what I believe, it only matters what I can prove. Now with this in mind, what I want to do this evening is I want to present three facts for you that are strongly evidenced and are granted by a large majority, if not virtually every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. Fact number one is Jesus' death by crucifixion. That Jesus was crucified and died through the process is granted by virtually 100% of all scholars who study the subject today. His crucifixion, his death by crucifixion, is attested not only in Christian sources, but in non-Christian sources as well. Now, crucifixion and the tortures that preceded it was an unspeakably cruel process. Many of us have watched Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and we've witnessed the brutal process of scourging used by the Romans in antiquity. Um, now, this is also described in other ancient writings. For example, Josephus uh, reports of a man who was filleted to the bone with whips. In a second century document uh, called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, he mentions how um, the Roman whip could expose both veins and arteries. Now the Jewish authorities had a law and it was that when scourging a person you could not give them more than 39 lashes. But the Romans had no such law. They could scourge a person with as many lashes as they wanted. In fact, they could scourge a person to death. Now once this brutal process, this torture was done, then the victim was forced to carry a crossbeam out and he was led outside the city gates when he was then, they took nails and they impaled him to a cross or to a tree. And then the victim was left there, exposed to the elements and to scavengers such as birds, dogs, and annoying insects. It was, an, it was a horrible, humiliating and painful death. In fact, the word excruciating comes out of the cross. In the first century, there was an author named Seneca and he described a person on the cross as appearing sickly, deformed, and swollen with ugly welts on shoulders and chest. Likewise, Josephus in the first century referred to crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. Now, in light of this process, the majority of the medical community today has come with a near unanimous decision that Jesus died as a result of being crucified. Now, scholars, or I should say uh, medical professionals, differ on the actual cause of crucifixion. Nevertheless, they are still very much convinced that Jesus certainly died as a result. So let's sum up our evidence for Jesus' death by crucifixion. First, it's multiply attested by even non-Christian sources. Second, 
our understanding of crucifixion and the tortures that preceded it militate against the person surviving the cross. And third is we look and we find that there's the universal um, medical, professional medical opinion that Jesus died as a result. So we can see that the evidence, both historical and medical, indicates that Jesus was crucified and that this process killed him. Fact number two, the empty tomb. An impressive 75% of all scholars who study the subject acknowledge this. Now, tonight I want to give you three arguments for the empty tomb. The first is the Jerusalem factor. Now, Jesus was publicly executed, then buried, and then his resurrection first proclaimed all in Jerusalem. Now, it would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground in that city if the body had still been in the tomb. Why all the Jewish or, or Roman authorities would have had to do is go to the tomb, exhume the body, tie his heels together, and drag him through Main Street in Jerusalem, and the hoax was over. But that did not happen. In fact, that leads us to our second argument for the empty tomb, and that is what the enemies of Jesus were saying. They were saying that the disciples stole the body. Now, I have a nine-year-old son. And let's suppose that he goes in tomorrow or Monday and he tells his fourth grade teacher that the dog ate his homework. Now that indicates to the teacher he doesn't have it to turn in. And likewise, when the um, disciples or the Jewish leadership was saying that the disciples stole the body, this indicates that they couldn't produce it. Leads us through our third argument for the empty tomb. And that is the concept of resurrection. Whoop. <laughs> wow. Okay, that doesn't like me. Oh well. Um, let me go back. The, the concept of resurrection in antiquity was that it was a bodily event. And, sorry about this. Yeah, I missed it. With the, anyway, we'll move on. The concept of bodily resurrection in antiquity was that um, it was a bodily event. It actually happened to the body. Now here's what happens. N.T. Wright, he's a very eminent New Testament historian, and he just did a book last year called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in this 800-page volume, Wright devoted the bulk of the work to, saying, uh, to analyzing what was going on in antiquity in terms of what scholars or what the people in antiquity believed happened once a person died. Now, here's the deal. He found that the pagans, what they believed was that when a person uh, died, they would shed the body and become a disembodied spirit. On the other hand, Jews had a couple of different views. Uh, there was a group of people who believed that there was no life after death. They were called the Sadducees. And when a person died, in their opinion, they, they, that's it. They just ceased to exist. There was no heaven for them. And so they were sad, you see. <laughs> now, on the other hand, most Jews believed in a bodily resurrection. Um, in fact, the leading group was the Pharisees, and they believed that there was life after death, and they were fair, you see. Now, what they believed was the body that died was the body that was buried, and then on the day of resurrection, that body would be raised and transformed into an immortal body. Now, Jews and Christians aren't the only ones that believe in bodily re that resurrection is bodily. In fact, we can show up before the time of Jesus, during, and slightly after, it always, always met a body. But the Islamic view of resurrection is that it's bodily as well. 
In the Quran, Surah 75, verses 1 through 4, it speaks that of Allah when on the final day of resurrection, on the final day, the judgment day, that final day, God will reassemble bones and restore a person down to their very fingertips. So there's a common thread throughout Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that resurrection always involved the body. Now, it would seem then that if the disciples are saying that Jesus was resurrected, that involved the body, and of course it, impl it implies the empty tomb. Now, in light of that, we've seen some good evidence for the empty tomb this evening. William Wand of Oxford University sums it up this way. He says, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other grounds than that of scientific history. So, where does this leave us? Number one, we've seen that Jesus was crucified and that the process killed him. Number two, we've seen the empty tomb. But wait, there's more. Fact number three, on a number of occasions, we see that the disciples of Jesus believed that he had been resurrected and had appeared to them. And not only was this disciples, but it was the foes of Jesus as well. Let's deal with the first group, and that would have to do with the friends of Jesus, his disciples. This is testified by eyewitnesses who knew the disciples, namely Paul and Clement of Rome. These, again, they knew the disciples, and they were saying that the disciples were claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. In addition, there is early oral tradition referred to as kerygma. It comes from the Greek word kerygma, which means the official and formal preaching of the disciples. And when we look at this, we find that the kerygma refers to resurrection. In fact, let me give you the primary example. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through, eight, 3 through 7, in what scholars have identified as a creed. Now, in this creed, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And then after that, Paul says, he adds his own name to that list. I wish I had time to get into how scholars and why they date this to within five years of the crucifixion and trace it to the disciples themselves. I don't have time, but if Mr. Ali would like to challenge this finding of the majority of scholars, I'd be happy to deal with it in the remainder of our debate this evening. In the meantime, we can conclude that the disciples were claiming that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. But we can go further. No less than seven sources in antiquity attest that they were willing to suffer and die for those convictions that Jesus had been resurrected. Now, I'm not saying, and I want to be clear on this, I am not saying that this proves that Jesus rose. Because certainly people of other religious beliefs, and even non-religious beliefs like communism, they are willing to suffer and die for their convictions. However, we wouldn't accuse people who suffer and die for their convictions for dying for a known lie. And thus, we can show that the disciples were not only claiming that Jesus had been risen, but they really believed it. Liars make poor martyrs. That brings us to our second group of people, and that is the foes of Jesus. I want to look at right now one of the major foes, and that is Paul. Now, the record states that Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was arresting, beating, consenting to the deaths of Christians, and then he converted to one because he claimed that he experienced a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. 
and it totally transformed his life. This testimony is documented not only by Paul himself, but confirmed by Acts, and also further corroborated by a very early oral tradition that said, he who persecuted the church now promotes the faith he once sought to destroy. So we have both early eyewitness and multiple testimonies to this fact. Folks, this is the kind of, of data historians drool over. But we can go further because not only did Paul claim this, we can say he really believed it because seven sources attest that he was willing to suffer and die for those convictions. We go to another foe, and that would be James. Now this is going to be the only time this evening that as evidence for the resurrection, I'm going to appeal to the Gospels because I like data which is much earlier, and that way we can avoid discussions over the trustworthiness of the Gospels or the inerrancy of the New Testament. I want to go with facts that I can prove, and that's what I'm, why I'm focusing on that. Nevertheless, historians still believe the testimony, the embarrassing testimony of the Gospels, that James, the brother of Jesus, as well as all of Jesus' brothers, were non-believers up through the time of his crucifixion. And shortly afterward, we find James as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And then we find that three non-biblical sources, even a non-Christian source, says that, Jose uh, that James was willing to die and did for his beliefs that Jesus had been resurrected. What accounts for this transformation? Most scholars answer that by saying it's the appearance to James and that it's reported in that early creed in 1 Corinthians 15 I mentioned a moment ago. Paula Fredrickson of Boston University comments, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence afterwards we have attest to that, the fact that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as an historian, that they must have seen something. Let's go ahead and sum up our three facts then this evening. Number one, Jesus' death by crucifixion. Number two, the empty tomb. And number three, the appearances to both friend and foe. At least that's what they believed had happened, that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. Let's go ahead and build a case now based on those three facts. We've seen that these facts are strongly evidenced historically and that they're granted by an impressive majority, if not virtually every scholar who studies the subject, including skeptical ones. We've also seen that Jesus' resurrection, we can see, easily explains all of these facts and without any strain. So in the absence of any plausible alternate theories to account for these facts, Jesus' resurrection can be accepted with confidence that it, it was an event that occurred. So now what Mr. Ali has to do this evening is he either has to show that the facts that I've presented, which um, are, again, strongly evidenced and attested or granted by virtually all scholars, that they're mistaken in this. Or he has to show that the logic of the argument that I have up here is flawed. Or he has to build a case of his own for what occurred that is, that as, is at least as plausible, if not more so, than Jesus' resurrection. Until and unless he does this, I think the conclusion is sound. Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation for the historical data and should be regarded as a fact that occurred in history. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Shabir. Yes. <laughs> You now have 20 minutes.
Yes, indeed. You're welcome. Right here. How is that? Fine. Hi. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak before you. I want to thank you, Gordon, for yes. giving me this chance. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. And uh, thanks very much uh, to my friend David, David Wood, sitting in the audience for his loving help today. Is your mic not on? Oh, yes, I, I, should, uh, I should use that, yeah. Oh. Allow, allow me to do a little trick here. Just like in Mel Gibson's movie, more goes on in the back room than, than you would be aware of. <laughs> Yes, I was just uh, thanking David for his loving help in assisting with my education. He took me to see uh, The Passion of the Christ today, and uh, I did learn a lot from watching that uh, film. Now, the task before me is to explain where I stand on this as a Muslim, and I want to begin there to explain why I have not found the evidence for the resurrection to be persuasive. And I think the first point I want to make is that I am a Muslim. Uh, and uh, uh, Gordon, you got it right in, in referring back to 9-11. Uh, in fact, after 9-11, I became more aware not only that I'm a Muslim, but I'm a Canadian, how Canadian I am. Mm. Uh, because uh, I saw my religion being hijacked on 9-11, and uh, then persons like myself had to come up and pick up the pieces and to explain who we are as Canadians and as, as Muslims. And uh, not only did I realize that I have a job to do as a Muslim, but also I realized that I have a job to do as a Canadian and as a Canadian Muslim. And that uh, job involves building bridges of understanding with other people. And it is in this spirit that I went out to see the Passion of the Christ today, because I do want to understand more of the faiths uh, of my neighbors. But the fact that I'm a Muslim is what most uh, is relevant to our discussion here tonight. Because that fact, of course, uh, may be a bias that precludes me from appreciating uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I want to first acknowledge that and then try to put it aside and look clearly at the facts uh, after acknowledging my, my own bias. Now, the fact that I'm a Muslim has uh, trained me to not appreciate the need for the cross, because in Islam we are taught that God forgives, and he forgives without demanding the price of sin to be paid, except in certain circumstances. There are occasions in Islamic law where one might uh, perform a sacrifice, or one might give charity uh, as a compensation for certain wrongs done. Uh, or if one has wronged someone else, one is required, in addition to seeking forgiveness from God, to also repair the harm done to others, to, uh, to the best of one's ability in doing that. But never in Islam do we understand that someone else might possibly, conceivably, pay for our sins. In fact, we would find it to be objectionable uh, if such a thing were to happen, at least on the human scale. I think uh, all human beings subscribe to the idea that it would be wrong to let an innocent person pay for the sins of the guilty. Uh, or, if such a thing were done, if someone else paid, then there would be no forgiveness. Forgiveness means, really, that no one pays for your sins. Now, having been brought up as a Muslim on these beliefs, it became uh, not uh, easy for me to appreciate the significance of the cross that I see is placed on it in, in Christianity. Uh, second, uh, in Islam, and uh, Mike has alluded to this in his presentation, there is a different conception of what happened uh, regarding the crucifixion 
of Jesus. The crucial verse is in chapter 4, verse number 157, where it says, I'm giving you the original language, just like Mel Gibson would. <laughs> If I'm to uh, translate that, it means they killed him not, nor did they crucify him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differed concerning the matter are in doubt concerning him. For a certainty, they killed him not. But God raised him to himself. And God is mighty and wise. Now, this verse has been interpreted by classical commentators on the Quran as meaning that someone else was transformed, made to look like Jesus, and that someone else was crucified instead of Jesus. So that, whereas everything appeared as though Jesus was being crucified, in fact, it were not so. Now, I said classical uh, interpreters of the Quran, and that may give the impression that these are the original and earliest interpreters, but they were not. In fact, uh, Neil Robinson, a, a very able scholar from Leeds University in the United Kingdom, in his book, Christ and Islam, and uh, Christianity, has traced the origins of these interpretations and found them to be originating from Iraq in the uh, middle of the second century. There is no reported saying from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that gives the details of this. Just a stark narrative, the way I've translated it in the, from the Quranic text. Uh, some classical commentators, on the other hand, struggle with the variety of uh, interpretive detail that was given by various commentators. And the best summation of that I have found to be in the Tafsir al-Kabir, the big Tafsir, the big commentary, by uh, the pride of the faith, Ar-Razi. Now, Ar-Razi, after summarizing all of the various interpretations that have been offered by Muslim scholars on this, in the end he concludes by saying these uh, interpretations are contradictory one to another, and uh, in the end only God knows what happens. And I think that is the best Muslim position regarding what happened at the crucifixion. Now, if we were to retrace our steps and find out where all these varied interpretations came from, where did Muslim scholars get the idea that someone else was made to look like Jesus and crucified instead? These came from a variety of sources, including informers from people of other faiths in the area. There were uh, some early Christian groups, not the earliest, mind you, from the second century of Christianity forward, there were Gnostics who believed that someone else was made to look like Jesus. In the Mel Gibson movie, we saw uh, Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross along with Jesus. And uh, some had believed that Simon was, uh, in fact, transformed to look like Jesus and was crucified instead of Jesus. And so this kind of information fed into the Muslim commentaries. But now when these commentaries are examined carefully, uh, most uh, modern scholars would tend to, today in Islam to think that something else is, re is the reality behind the Quranic narrative. Yusuf Ali, for example, in his translation of the Quran, has it such that uh, even though it appeared to the onlookers that Jesus had died on the cross, in fact, he had not died. Uh, further to that, we have uh, Muhammad Asad in the message of the Quran, again a translation and commentary on the Quran, well rooted in the traditional tafsirs, uh, saying also that the stories which grew up within Muslim tradition to say that someone else was put on the cross instead of Jesus is not uh, necessarily what the Quran implies. And in fact, he found and he exposed a very uh, difficult problem with that interpretation. What he said was 
that the passage, uh, how much more time do I have? Any indication? 12 minutes. I don't want to spend all my time here on Quranic interpretation and not get to the biblical facts. I want to be sure of that. So be careful. What he said was that uh, these stories that grew up among Muslim commentators ignored a grammatical problem that was there in, in the way they have interpreted the verse. And this grammatical problem was pointed out by a, an ancient classical uh, scholar uh, of Quranic tafsir, a scholar by the name of Az-Zamakshari in his uh, tafsir known as Al-Kashaf, the unveiling. And what Zamakshari said was that, in fact, when you look at the passage, it says he was made to appear to them. But it could also mean it was made to appear to them. Because in the Arabic reference, the reference who, uh, using a personal pronoun there, could refer to him or to it. And he said that if, in fact, this verse is referring to the crucified person, that the crucified person was made to look like Jesus, that crucified person should have previously been mentioned so that the referent could be attached to him. See, if you're telling a story and you said, he said, we want to know who is this he. But if this person was just mentioned a little while ago, we know this is referring to that person. If the person was not mentioned, you have to introduce him by name. And so Samakshari pointed out that this could not be a reference to the crucified individual. But the classical commentators were basing their commentary on the idea that this referred to Jesus. But Samakshari pointed out that in fact it couldn't refer to Jesus because it was not Jesus who was made to resemble someone else, according to their explanation. It was someone else who was made to refer to Jesus. And Zamakshari proposed instead, even though he himself did not reach the logical conclusion of his proposal, he proposed that the verse actually means it was made so to appear to them. As in the Arabic expression, it seemed so to them. So now, many modern commentators would follow that interpretation and say that what the verse is saying is that even though it appeared to them that they had crucified Jesus, in fact, they had not done so. Now, we can develop that further if we have more time, and I will deal with this probably in response to your questions or to Mike's uh, probing. Uh, but the point is just simply this now. In the final summation, this verse of the Quran does not necessitate the belief that someone else was put on the cross instead of Jesus. But it leaves open the possibility that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. And this, in a nutshell, is the Muslim belief, that even though the enemies thought they had Jesus, thought they had him killed, they were not successful in doing that. Now, if you've seen the Mel Gibson movie, you'd be sure the guy died. You'd wonder if he didn't die before actually reaching the cross with all of the tortures he has gone through. But when we have time, I will take apart and deconstruct that movie and show you where Mel has in fact improved upon the facts in order to get uh, that conclusion firmly fixed in our minds. But now, so far I have said that because of my Muslim background, I am not predisposed uh, to find the evidence for the resurrection persuasive. But that does not mean, however, that if the evidence is put before me that I should deny it simply because I'm a Muslim. I think myself to be a reasonable individual. I study, I read these books, and I try to find out what Christian scholars have said about the resurrection, what proof they have offered. I've listened to Mike carefully, and his arguments are not new. I found them in the writings of other apologists, some of whom I've debated with, such as Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, 
And uh, I have studied uh, in detail some of the commentaries on the biblical passages, especially the ones which are more relevant. And I'd like to tell you uh, why I do not find the evidence so persuasive. I think two reasons. One is that I couldn't find it persuasive that Jesus actually reappeared to his disciples in a physical bodily form. And second, I could not be persuaded, given the gospel evidence alone, that Jesus, in fact, actually died on the cross. Now, usually, if a person lived 2,000 years ago and he's no longer around, we assume that he is dead. But if someone comes and tells us that a certain person who was executed 2,000 years ago was actually seen alive a few days later, we'll be asking two questions as reasonable individuals. First, we'll be asking, not necessarily in that order, but we'll be asking, are you sure you really saw him? And the second thing we'll be asking is, I have to check my mics. <laughs> are you sure he was really dead? So let's look at the two in, in order. Are you sure he was really dead? Now, Mel Gibson is quite imaginative, and what he has done is that he has actually improved upon the information that is given in the Gospels, and so he has imagined the worst possible tortures that a person could go through in crucifixion, and he has put them all into the movie till uh, it, it really becomes too much. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. John Heyman's film, which has been widely distributed uh, by Christian groups a couple of years ago, uh, and of which I had the pleasure of watching the Egyptian Arabic version, so I can learn a little bit of Arabic along the way as well, uh, I found to be more true to the gospel narratives and more reasonably uh, historical than Mel Gibson's movie. And the tortures which Jesus has endured in, in, uh, in John Heyman's film are nothing close to what he endures in Mel Gibson's. And nobody died watching John Heyman. Now, scholars who have combed the narratives in the Gospels have tried to understand what caused Jesus' death. As Mike uh, uh, told us, even though everyone would agree that Jesus died on the cross as historians, they couldn't agree as doctors as to what caused his death. And this is amply elaborated in the book entitled uh, the Death of the Messiah by Raymond Brown, a two-volume book, a magnum opus, uh, a book highly recommended by even conservative Christians. In fact, Raymond Brown is a noted scholar. Uh, I mentioned Dr. William Lane Craig, who will be no stranger to you folks. Uh, and uh, Dr. Craig refers to Raymond Brown as uh, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our present time. Bruce Metzger. Uh, said that if you can own only one book on the New Testament, let it be Raymond Brown's introduction to the New Testament. An extraordinary work. Now, Raymond Brown warned us, what could have caused the death of our Lord? He said, because crucifixion does not usually cause the piercing of any vital organ. So what caused his death? Now, Mel Gibson goes out of his way to try and show us uh, the worst imaginable tortures of Jesus till he has uh, the Roman authorities 
having Jesus on the cross and turning the cross over so they can bend the nails that have protruded after going, going through uh, the patibulum of the cross. And that is unreal. Because if anyone has actually used hammers and nails, you know that once a nail has gone into wood like that, it's pretty firm. You can hang 10 men on a nail like that. You got these uh, something like eight inch long nails going through uh, wood that is about six inches thick, maybe even thicker than that. There's no need to bend it on the other side to make sure it holds. But Gibson has them turn Jesus over with the cross and slam face down. You wonder, wouldn't he die just from that? And then when they're done with that, they have to bring him back up the way they need him. So slam the other way, and you wonder if his back is not broken every single bone of it. But if we take just the narratives the way they are, given in the text, one would not be sure that Jesus actually died on the cross. The second point that I wanted to make about this is that in reading the narratives, I could not be persuaded that they actually saw Jesus back from the dead. Now, of course, when you read the narratives today, you see that there are many, including the Gospel according to John, in which there are at least three. But when you comb back past through these narratives and you look at the evolution of the text over time, you realize that the later Gospels are improving the story for you. So in Mark's Gospel, you do not have any actual narrative showing that Jesus reappeared to his disciples, except in an ending which is known today to not be originally from Mark. It's a later addition into his gospel. Then you go to the later gospels of Matthew and Luke, and you can see that right before your eyes, the stories are being improved. And that tells us that over time, as the stories were told and retold, they took on certain improvements to become what they are now. So now, when we think about what happened, we can, be quite we can be quite convinced that Jesus died because we're reading them all together, putting them all together in our minds. When we read the Gospels about the reappearance of Jesus from the dead, we are reading all of them together and thinking that all of these details are true. But what scholars have noted is that, in fact, these stories have evolved over time. So if you have, for example, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus appearing to his 12 disciples, or rather 11, because the one had uh, betrayed him on the day of Easter, John has the dramatic reappearance of Jesus a week later so that he can appear to Thomas and the doubting Thomas can verify that Jesus is here for real. But in order for John to do that, he had to make Thomas empty, uh, absent on the first occasion. So that whereas Luke has him appearing to all of his disciples, the 11, John says... Thomas was absent. This leaves the opening for Jesus to come back a week later and appear to, to the doubting Thomas. So when we read the stories, we see then that the gospel writers themselves have improved the stories. And if we are to peel back the improvements and study the text historically, we could not be convinced that Jesus actually died on the cross and also reappeared to his disciples in a physical bodily Form. Those historians who agree that he died are agreeing what historians would normally agree with. If somebody lived 2,000 years ago and is no longer with us, then he is dead, according to the rules of history. Uh, but 
If someone claims that he reappeared to his disciples in a physical bodily form, such as to lead to the conclusion that he resurrected from the dead, then we should be asking two questions. Was he really dead? Examining the narratives does not persuade me that he was actually dead on the cross. And second, examining the narratives, peeling back the later layers of uh, improvements, does not persuade me that he actually reappeared to his disciples in a physical bodily form. Now, Muslims and Christians can still believe that Jesus uh, was raised up by God, but that, of course, is something that we cannot prove, and even though I believe that, it is not something I'm here to demonstrate and prove. Thank you very much. As we mentioned earlier, we're not uh, doing a formal debate, and we're going to enter into something that's uh, somewhat creative in regards to debate. Uh, we're picking up something from television, Crossfire is a title anyway. And uh, our next 15 minutes will involve Mike asking questions of Shabir, and then we'll exchange that and go back and forth a couple of times, and I, I think you'll find this interesting. How you doing, Shabir? Oh, very good, Mike. It's really great to meet you today. Um, Let's see, you started off, well, let me, let me go with what you said last here uh, about the developing legend within the Gospels. Um, you spent some time talking about how um, the traditions of the resurrection, the resurrection narratives had developed embellishments over time and there were some legendary additions and so forth and so therefore we, we shouldn't believe the, the accounts at all. Um, in my opening speech tonight, I was pretty careful to uh, discuss uh, evidence that predates the Gospels by decades. In fact, stuff which is, uh, goes back to the original disciples themselves. And so even, let, I, I think the Gospels are reliable, but let's just say for a moment, in fact, I'd be happy for the remainder of our debate this evening to just concede for the sake of argument. The Gospels are filled with errors and contradictions, we'll say. Um, how does that impact the evidence that I provided, which, again, comes decades earlier? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that what happened is you're assaulting this hill and you're throwing grenades and we're seeing explosions, but I'm on this other hill and I'm saying, well, what's he doing over there? My army's on this hill. And how would you respond to that? Hmm. Well, the evidence which you have cited um, showing that there was an early acknowledgement that Jesus reappeared to his disciples. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that uh, uh, historians uh, uh, deny or that uh, what I have presented denies. Uh, you have evidence that uh, there was a blossoming Christian faith. People believe that Jesus is alive. Muslims believe that Jesus is alive. But the belief that someone is alive and in heaven with God does not necessitate his bodily resurrection. In the Gospels themselves, you have it that Jesus proclaims that Abraham and Moses are alive. They're alive with God. But the belief that they're alive does not necessitate their bodily resurrection. So it is quite possible that uh, the disciples of Jesus, uh, witnessing the crucifixion event, later on came to the conclusion, for whatever reason, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that uh, conclusion does not necessitate finding his tomb empty and knowing that he physically, bodily resurrected from the dead. It is just uh, a faith expression 
of the closeness that Jesus had with God and the conviction of his disciples that God did not leave Jesus alone to suffer uh, in this uh, horrible way. I think I'd have to take issue with that because when we go back to the earliest tradition, um, like, for example, the creeds, there's several of them peppered throughout the New Testament, but let's just, you know, we talked about 1 Corinthians 15, that he died, that he was raised, um, and that he appeared. Um, in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the majority of scholars acknowledge that we have a, an actual early formula or oral tradition there. It says that, um, uh, you know, he was declared the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness through his resurrection from the dead. So in the various early traditions, in, in fact, that would predate Paul, that predates everything, those, those references. Um, there are, I counted, three creeds themselves within the New Testament that would predate Paul and go back to within just a few years. In fact, James D.G. Dunn says that the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 dates to within months of the crucifixion. So we have very early and goes back to the disciples. Um, Paul himself mentions resurrection or rise from the dead on 30 occasions. So we have a total of 33 references in the New Testament very early, predating the Gospels, and a number of those predating even Paul, that talks about Jesus being dead and raised, or resurrection. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, the concept of resurrection, the body that was buried is the same body that's raised and was transformed into an immortal body, and the testimony of the disciples is that's the body that appeared to them. Well, I think you, you have to be aware that the creeds that you're referring to have been identified by scholars combing the New Testament, looking at the writings of Paul. They look at Romans, as you've uh, mentioned. They look at 1 Corinthians. You didn't mention Philippians, but it's there in the back of your mind, uh, as another one of the kerygmas uh, that, um, uh, that scholars have identified as early statements of faith. But notice that Paul does not say where he got these from. And uh, Paul, in, in adding his own uh, self, adding himself to the list of people to whom Jesus uh, appeared is adding uh, to that list a person to whom Jesus appeared somehow spiritually. Because in, in the Acts of the Apostles, where the uh, appearance to Paul is described, it is not a physical bodily appearance, but it is a blind flashing light from out of heaven. So once Paul has added that, I think your case becomes weak here, and it becomes more uh, like the case of those who say that uh, the disciples of Jesus must have seen an appearance uh, of Jesus, and Muslims should be willing to grant that God, in order to solace the companions of Jesus, allowed them to see a spiritual vision of Jesus that would persuade them that Jesus is alive with God so that they can go forward and preach uh, the, the Christian faith despite the fact that Jesus died this horrible death which would mark him off in the eyes of people as a condemned criminal, a blasphemer, and a false messiah. So none of the evidence you have cited actually proves that Jesus physically, bodily, uh, rose from the dead. Okay, I appreciate you saying that. Um, actually, uh, I don't think that what Paul saw on the road to Damascus was a uh, bodily appearance or a spiritual uh, vision or appearance like you're saying. But I'm glad you grant Acts because if you want to do that, then we'll go to Acts 13 where Paul is preaching as well. And there he very, uh, very distinctly and precisely says bodily resurrection. He contrasts King David with Jesus. And he says, David died, was buried, his body decayed. Jesus died, was buried, and his body also, uh, or, but his body did not decay. Rather, God raised it up, and of that we are all eyewitnesses. 
So in doing so, he's, he's certainly contrasting what happened to David with Jesus and saying Jesus' body did not decay. He raised it up and were eyewitnesses to this. Now, if you mention Paul, we have to also say, even if we do take that appearance in Acts chapters 9, 22, and 26, where he sees him on the road to Damascus and it's the bright light, um, this is a post-ascension appearance. So that could certainly account why the difference. It's the disciples saw him right after he had been raised from the dead, but Paul is seeing after he ascended to heaven. And Paul elsewhere, in his own writings, is very clear about bodily resurrection. For example, in Romans 8.11, he says, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So certainly referring to bodily resurrection there. And then in, uh, you have um, uh, Colossians 2.9, where it says, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he's using the present tense. And of course, this is after post-ascension. So Paul's view is still that Jesus is in a body. Um, I mean, there's numerous references like this. So I, I, I would just have to disagree with you that um, he's referring to a vision or a spirit here. And then in terms of where he got the information from, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, he says that three years after his conversion, which would have been about five years after the crucifixion, he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples. And he meets with Peter. He says, I met with Peter. And the Greek word used there is hysteresi, from which we get the English word history. And the word would mean that he went up and he did this historical investigation. He was asking for history of Jesus from Peter. And many scholars believe that this is at the point where Paul received this creed in 1 Corinthians 15 and all this because he was asking a history of Jesus. And that's where he would have received the information from. Well, I think you've said it yourself, Mike, that there is an assumption there that Paul got this from Peter, but Paul doesn't actually say that. And we have to assume that Paul got it from there. Moreover, where Paul speaks about bodily resurrection elsewhere, that does not necessarily mean that Jesus' resurrection was of the same sort. Uh, you cannot say that because things generally happen a particular way, every specific case happens as the general case. Uh, moreover, once Paul has uh, been added to that list of, of appearances, you cannot preclude the fact that others receive a similar appearance to the one that Paul received, which is something like a blinding light, something like a spiritual, a non-physical uh, appearance, not Jesus appearing in a bodily form, but a blinding light in heaven. Uh, and when you put us all together, you realize that the, what Mel Gibson, for example, has shown in the movie that Jesus is sitting there in the tomb, and we, we get a chance to see in the tomb that nobody else has seen 2,000 years ago. Uh, this is uh, exactly the kind of evidence we would have liked to have, and we don't have. So finally, we should say that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is lacking. And if Muslims and Christians believe that God miraculously raised Jesus into heaven in a mysterious way that we do not know how, and that we do not need evidence for, but we accept on faith, this would be fine. But you have made it necessary, and other apologists like yourselves have made it necessary to prove that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And this is where you are in the difficulty. I don't okay. see it as a difficulty because, can I just respond to that? Sure. Um, because the disciples themselves made it an issue. They claimed resurrection. That's what their claim was. Yeah, but you see, they didn't make this the, the, the issue that they must prove. It was Paul who made this the issue. Because it was Paul who said, I've decided to know nothing else but Christ and him crucified. It was Paul who said, and you quoted him, 
that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is vain. But why should it be so? Why couldn't the suffering of Jesus, as in the Passion, be enough to base one's uh, faith in Jesus? Why couldn't all of his miraculous teachings, his healings, all of his uh, beautiful teachings, which are found in the Sermon on the Mount, why couldn't that be the basis for Christian faith? Why does he have to resurrect from the dead? God okay, now we're going anyway to wanted. shift questions here, which is, <laughs> which is part of the intention to uh, have these parties just unlock and, and step back a little bit, take a breath, and now we'll, uh, we'll shift the initiative uh, at this point to uh, Shabir. To, uh, he can pick up and, and carry on or uh, move on to other topics. Yes. Um, Mike, in, in your presentation, you, you presented what you called uh, three irrefutable facts. And they're facts you think that have been agreed upon by, by everyone. One is the death of Jesus on the cross. Two is his, uh, the, the empty tomb. And third, his reappearance to his disciples. Now, if you, if you trace the logic of where I was actually leading with my questions, I've, I've already started the question period for you. Um, now, where you have actually put yourself in the difficulty here is with first acknowledging that it is historically certain that Jesus died on the cross. Now, the circumstances of his death would mark him off as a blasphemer. As, as a Muslim, I believe in Jesus, but I, I believe in him on, by virtue of my belief in the Quran. I've said that in, the, in my opening presentation. But what Christian apologists are asking me to do is to leave my Quran aside, to say that this is not historical. I must go with the information that is there in the Gospels, based on which the historical conclusion is that he certainly died under Pontius Pilate. Now, if he certainly died on the Pontius Pilate as a blasphemer, as a curse of God, as Paul would put it, and that is certain, and if the evidence for his resurrection from the dead is not certain, but you can say 75% of scholars agree on that, and of course you mean evangelical conservative scholars. Oh, not at all. And, and if you say scholars who study it, you're not referring to scholars who have just dismissed it and uh, do not bother even to look at it. Yes, now, when, because, of course, of, of other conclusions that have already been firmly fixed, uh, conclusions that they know about the history of the Gospels, the way they have been written, and so on. So now, uh, having backed yourself into that corner, you have to provide irrefutable evidence that he also resurrected from the dead. And that is the evidence which you do not have, because you have Gospels uh, which have uh, been uh, evolved over time, the earliest gospel, the gospel according to Mark, does not have the ending which we would love to see Jesus reappearing to his disciples. Somebody had to fix that in later on. You have the later improvements that I've spoken about. How do you respond to that? Well, as far as the irrefutable evidence, that is a tall burden of proof right there. I don't think we can do that for anything. I mean, um, we can't prove anything with 100% certainty. I, I can't prove that I'm 42 years old. Uh, for, for all I can prove, I mean, I was created, everything here was created five minutes ago, um, and we were given memories of events that never took place and food in our stomachs from meals we never ate. I can't prove that that's not the case. What we have to look for is high probability and what is the most plausible explanation for the data. And from what you've given me, you haven't attacked any of the evidence at all. Regarding the Gospels, I mean, you're bringing up the Gospels again, but the evidence I provided is decades prior to the Gospels. Um, and so attacking the Gospels, again, I'm, for the sake of our debate this evening, I'm more than happy to grant 
that the Gospels are totally unreliable and filled with errors and contradictions. I don't believe that, of course, all right, but for the sake of our debate, I'm willing to, because I want to get our debate focused on the evidence, which is, that I presented, which is decades before the Gospels. Um, and so, you questioned the death of Jesus, you said, and on what basis do you do that again? Okay, now you've switched the questioning, I'm, I'm, <laughs> me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're in control. Yeah, yeah. First, I should re uh, remind you, Mike, that I did not say that uh, none of the gospel is reliable. Uh, but I did say that the gospels have evolved over time. And uh, once we peel back the layers of evolution in the gospels, we realize that in the earliest strata, there is not uh, sufficient evidence uh, to conclude that Jesus both died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, uh, or that he reappeared to his disciples. Once we acknowledge that, and you, you have the earliest strata of evidence, which is prior to the Gospels, which you mentioned, and we see that in the earliest strata, which you mentioned, there is no firm declarative statement that Jesus physically, bodily raised from the dead, then we can see the evolution even starting with those declarations. From the declarations of Paul, that Jesus reappeared to his disciples, and that this forms the bedrock of Paul's emerging faith. Naturally, the Gospels, which were, would be written, written later by followers of Paul, would want to prove that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. And they have taken the story further. And so we see one stage in Mark, we see a further development in Matthew, a further development in Luke, and then the final development in John's Gospel. And a further development in Mel Gibson's movie. <laughs> <laughs> So there are improvements along the line. What Mel Gibson has done is nothing new. This is what the gospel writers have done too. They have improved, they have told the story the way they thought it should have been told. And Mel Gibson has done that. We need to see Jesus sitting there. We need to see Jim Caviezel back alive without any stripes on his body. Just the, the, the one little nail wound in his palm where it shouldn't be anyhow. So it, it, Gibson has told it the way it ought to be told. Each gospel writer in his own time has taught it the way, has told it the way he thought it ought to be told. Given this evolution of the gospels, peeling back to the earliest strata of tradition, can you be satisfied in the earliest strata of tradition Jesus actually died on the cross and that he reappeared to his disciples in a physical bodily form? Offer evidence of that. I have. It's the early oral traditions and Paul himself. You mentioned the gospels. But again, I'd like to express, I'm willing to grant you the Gospels have legend and errors and all kinds of problems for tonight's debate. But I'm still on this other hill, and I'm, I'm waiting for you over here. Um, now, you had mentioned about, no, I'm not going to ask you a question, I'm sorry. Um, you, you said that... Um, what? what? No, you hmm? can't just wait and let him ask the question. Okay, I'll wait, him to, I'll wait for that. Um, no statement that Jesus died in the earliest strata? Well, Yes, there is. I mean, in that creed that was within five years, and James Dunn in his new book, Jesus Remembered, said that this, to the tradition in this creed, dates back to within months of the crucifixion. Months. And the creed says that he died, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. And then you go down a couple of verses later. What's really interesting is Paul says in verse 1, I'm going to preach to you the gospel. And then he gives the creed in verses 3 through 8. And then in 9, he says, hey, whether it's me or they, the apostles, 
the disciples, we preach Jesus and him crucified. In other words, or, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up, forgive me. He says, we're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. So there Paul's saying he's preaching the same thing as the disciples are. You go down a few more verses, I think it's verse 14, and he calls this kerygma, kerygma. In other words, he's identifying it as the formal and official preaching of the disciples. So, I mean, this is very early tradition. And then we have Paul again. Um, he mentions resurrection or dead and raised 30 times in his writings. And then you've also got the, the creed in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that talks about declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. So resurrection is in the earliest strata. There is nothing earlier that, I mean, we can go trace it back to the disciples themselves. So you could say that they're mistaken, perhaps, or, I mean, I'll let you raise the theory there. Um, but they interpreted their experiences as being resurrection, which means they understood Jesus of dying, they understood that the body that died was the body that was raised and appeared to them. And so therefore the tomb was empty. Yes, I can see that you feel that I'm not really dealing with your points. But in fact, uh, if you listen carefully, I have been dealing with your points all of the time. Because look, you have said fact number one, that Jesus died on the cross. And I'm saying the earliest strata of tradition cannot convince you that Jesus actually died on the cross. Now it's for you to respond to this, but let me lay them all out. Uh, first, notice in Mark's gospel that Pilate has a doubt that Jesus actually died. And for good reason, because crucifixion usually took several days to kill a person. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus was only on the cross for a few hours. And all of the beatings that are there in Gibson's movie are just imagination because Mark does not give you any of those details. It is true that some such beating could have been possible for a crucified victim in the Roman world. But notice also that Pilate was sympathetic towards Jesus. He found him innocent and sought to release him. But he was pressured into agreeing to have Jesus crucified beyond his will. And I think Mel Gibson had it right when he, uh, he showed the difficulty that Pilate was uh, in there and, the, and the, he was caught with, between a rock and a hard place. He finally agreed to have Jesus crucified. But giving that reticence from Pilate, it is, uh, it, it is possible that his uh, uh, men would not have delivered to Jesus the most brutal punishment possible. And that finally, Jesus might not have died on the cross. The one thing that might have killed him would, would have been the spear wound. But that is mentioned only in the gospel according to John. That is the last of the four gospels, remember? And that represents the last shadow of evolution among the gospels. And if that spear wound was delivered, you'd be sure that all of the gospel writers would mention it because it's such a pertinent fact that would finally prove that Jesus died, or at least give strong evidence for that case. And they do not mention it. Scholars think today that this is an imaginative detail added by John's gospel in order to prove against the docetists that Jesus was actually flesh and blood, because we have here the blood and water proving that he is actually real flesh and blood. He's not here as a spirit on the cross, uh, as some docetists uh, believe. And so we have, within the early estrada, no firm evidence that Jesus actually died on the cross. So I've dealt with the fact number one. About the empty tomb. Now historians... I'm sorry, can I get a moment please, to respond, respond to that? Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, you're still dealing with the Gospels. <laughs> And I'm appealing to this very early evidence, which predates it um, by decades. If you have answered that, I've shown that this earliest evidence, first mm -hmm. of all, the sources are not known. If you cite James Dunn as saying that this was early, that's James Dunn's guess. I respect him as a great scholar, mm -hmm. and I read his writings. But after all, it is a scholarly guess from one individual. Somebody else may have a different guess. And that, just that, name that me any scholars yes. that Just name me any New Testament historians 
okay? And as you know, in New Testament historians, it's largely critical. Many non-Christians, many non-believers, many atheists are in that uh, discipline. Just name me a single New Testament scholar who doubts the death of Jesus. Notice that I have acknowledged previously that all historians, you can include New Testament scholars, except for Muslims, would agree that Jesus died on the cross. Because it is a, an assumption that somebody who lived 2,000 years ago and is no longer alive is dead. <laughs> uh, but that's but, not why New Testament scholars are concluding that. Well, they are concluding that for the same reason as everyone else, that Jesus died on the cross, not because they have any irrefutable proof. And I'm not using irrefutable in the, in the ridiculous sense in which you've treated it. You see, you have firm evidence that Jesus was on the cross and died on the cross. You've said so yourself. Everyone agrees on that. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have firm evidence that he resurrected from the dead? If someone claims that he resurrected from the dead, then we'd be wondering, did you really see him? And did he really die after all? So it is in the light of the later claim that I'm asking, did he really die on the cross? Show me the evidence that he actually died on the cross. What fatal wound killed him on the cross? Okay. And, and I've named Raymond Brown, who has gone through a long discussion on this, and finally, he cannot conclude what would have killed him. Of course, if you took him down and you buried him under six feet of dirt, he would have died, but that's not what happened to him. So what really killed Jesus? You said yourself, the medical doctors could not agree on what was the cause of death. So if we don't know the cause of death, the only thing we can say is that a man who lived 2,000 years ago and is no longer with us is dead. And I think that's a universal conclusion. But if you say he reappeared to his disciples, then we should go back and look to see whether he was actually dead. And we cannot find the evidence that he was actually dead, can we? Okay. Now, I, well, I think we can. Everybody attests to it. Our understanding of crucifixion militates against it. And medically, the doctors are saying he, he died. But I do want to comment on Brown because you mentioned about the spear wound in Brown. And that's correct, John does mention it. But John's the only one who mentions nails for crucifixion. It's not even in a crucifixion scene. He mentions that uh, to Thomas, you see the nail wounds. He's the only one that mentions the cruafragium or the breaking of legs. The others didn't do that either, but we don't deny that nails were used in crucifixion or that legs weren't broken. Let me give you a quote by Raymond Brown since you like to use him. This is in Death of the Messiah, the same book that, that you quoted from, page 1092 and 93. People who would never bother reading a responsible analysis of the traditions about how Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the dead are fascinated by the report of some new insight to the effect he was not crucified or did not die. And then on page 1373 says, except for the romantic few who think that Jesus did not die on the cross, most scholars accept the uniform testimony of the Gospels that Jesus died during the Judean prefecture of Pontius Pilate. So again, you brought up the Gospels and I'm on this other hill and Raymond Brown is with me. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, because if you read Raymond Brown carefully from the page that you quoted, and I've read it myself as well, that's from the section in which he's dealing with fanciful, imaginative uh, scenarios, whereas, for example, the Ahmadiyyas have claimed that Jesus walked all the way to Kashmir and he died and buried there. Or recently there was an uh, Australian uh, lady fearing who claimed that Jesus uh, came back and he was st still alive and he got married to Mary Magdalene. Right. Uh, so uh, 
Brown was responding to this kind of imaginative detail. But Brown himself, in the section, if you've read it, dealing with the physiological cause of, of Christ's death, uh, gives a different picture. In the end, he looks at the kinds of medical examinations that have been done now post-mortem, thousands of years after the fact, and he dismisses them because he says that the details that are given by the, uh, by the gospel writers should not be taken as actual physical details that occurred, but they, do, they are due to a number of factors, including imaginative detail added by the evangelists themselves. And you mentioned some of them. Yes, they're only in the gospel according to John. Not to deny that nails were used in crucifixion, but to say that Jesus was actually nailed to the cross, this is something that the gospel writers wrote because they thought that is how you tell about a crucifixion. But crucifixion did not necessarily involve nailing. One could have been tied as well. And notice that Gibson, in order to have the nail go in the palm, which is traditionally how it is uh, shown, had to also have the arms tied. And notice that the other uh, two who were uh, condemned to be crucified, they had their arms tied to the crossbar. And it was possible to raise a person to the cross and have his arms tied, and he did not have to be nailed. So maybe Jesus was nailed. But to say that he was necessarily nailed because John says so is really to uh, give us more to imagine. Uh, about the breaking of the legs. Again, this is doubted by historical scholars because they look at John putting this in, in place and they say that John has written this in order to prove the Old Testament scripture to be true. You see, John has done what Gibson has done. What they have done is that they look at and they say, what should have happened to Jesus if we read the Old Testament right? So Gibson reads in the Old Testament that the Son of God will bruise the head of the serpent. And what does he do? He brings the serpent into the Garden of Gethsemane, so Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. Where is that in the Gospels? Gibson has put that in the movie because he thinks that is how it should have been because it was prophesied. In a similar way, scholars have found that the four Gospel writers have written things into the Gospels about Jesus, not because this was physically witnessed in the life of Jesus, but because this is how the writers read the Old Testament. They thought this should have happened to Jesus, and so they wrote it. So John thought that there has to be some way in which there is an attempt, that, you know, people's legs are being broken, but not Jesus's, because it was written, his legs shall not be broken. Even though that was written about the Paschal Lamb, it's something entirely different. He, they will look on the one whom he has pierced. Even though that is about false prophets who were pierced because they were false prophets, John brings that here about Jesus, even though Jesus is not a false prophet, and that passage had nothing to do with Jesus. But John adds these details, not because they, they actually physically, historically were witnessed in the life of, or around the death of Jesus, but because John thought that this should have happened because the Old Testament said so, and he wrote it as though it happened and the Old Testament confirmed it. Okay. I noticed it's my turn, so how about if I just continue with that? Is that okay? Well, let, let's take a break and a brief uh, a breath <laughs> for a moment. I'm not sure if we're debating Mel Gibson or Brown or, or what here. I, I would like to uh, encourage uh, us to uh, maybe take a step back and, and go at this uh, from another direction. Consider that. Take a sip of water. Perhaps. Take a yeah. sip of water. Yeah. I've, I've heard several of the points about three times, and my hunch is we're not going anywhere <laughs> after you hear it three times. Okay. You get the next uh, 15 minutes, and then Shabir, you have uh, 15 minutes after that, and then we'll be going to the audience for uh, some questions. About a half hour, if you care to be thinking now what you would like to, to raise as a question. We'll go from there. Okay. Mike. Um, a few thoughts on the, the crucifixion, can I say that? If you like. Okay. 
What uh, you mentioned how we can't be certain nails were used. Well, in a very good book by Martin Hengel, an eminent New Testament scholar uh, titled Crucifixion, he lists 13 sources in antiquity where uh, nails are used. And Josephus can be added to that list for number 14. We can probably add Tac Tacitus to it as well as a 15. Don't mind if I interrupt you, but okay. I, I didn't deny that nails were generally used in crucifixions. But I'm, I'm asserting that nails were not necessarily used in every crucifixion. A crucified victim might also be tied instead of being nailed. Okay. Hengel does mention one account in antiquity where binding, tying to the cross is used, but only that it was used and as, a, as a, a practice in Egypt. So we really just don't have any historical kind of evidence whatsoever to show that binding was used by the Romans. Everything seems to point to nails, and so we have no reason to question that nails were used when it came to Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And in fact, this is the uniform Actually, testimony. Actually, we do. I have a book here by uh, John Rousseau and Rami Arav, a book entitled Jesus and His World, a cultural and uh, an archeological and cultural dictionary. And here it is asserted that in fact, in crucifixions it were possible uh, to also use binding instead of nailing. So nailing was not in every and I'm sorry, what case. references do they use in antiquity for that, rather than just making a statement? Uh, well, you can read the book yourself. Well, no, this is a, <laughs> sorry, this is an academic debate, not a lunchroom discussion. And yes. you, you can't just say, well, this author says this, you have to provide reasons for yes. it. And I'm providing reasons, I, I, I'm citing you sources. Um, now, if you like, yeah, I'd be okay. happy so to I'll change. Give, I'll give you his references. In his bibliography, he has named here a long list. And rather than, than delay everyone with that, I'll show you the list. And if you would like, you can make a copy, and I can... Uh, okay, where's the list of, of what? Here is the, the bibliography, just dealing well, with the crucifixion. Right, but you're responsible mm -hmm. now to show me where it says that binding is used, not just the bibliography that I have to go through and read now. Uh, no, I, I, don't think, I don't think this is necessary, because remember, you cited Martin Hengel, right. whose book I have, and it's sitting in my hotel room right now. Uh, uh, Martin Hengel, you cited Martin Hengel. I did not question the integrity of the, of the scholar. Uh, Martin Hengel is a known scholar. I respect him. And uh, if he says that his sources lead him to this conclusion, I have no doubt in that. Here we have a couple of respectable scholars producing a respectable book with a long list uh, just dealing with the few pages in which they have dealt with the crucifixion. So pages 74, 75, 76, 77, uh, and a part of 78 deals with the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And then his, his list of, of books almost fills the rest of that page. So uh, I, I do not question the integrity of these scholars, and you cannot say that in the midst of a debate here, uh, we should uh, question the scholar who got the information from the other scholars. Uh, that would be, I think, a, a sticky point. It, okay. you, well, of at course, least I've got Josephus, I've got Tacitus. Um, who can you provide as a counterexample where binding was used by the Romans? What I'm providing is a book that has been written by a couple of reputable scholars. They're not Muslim scholars. John Russo. Rami Arav. It's a, it's a book with a, with a respectable uh, presentation. It's a scholarly academic uh, text. It's, it's billed as a dictionary, and in fact, that's what it is. It's a listing alphabetically of uh, information of a historical nature. Uh, they're, they're not making things up, and they have listed their bibliography. If you doubt that you want to take it up with these scholars, go right ahead. 
but uh, you, you cannot here uh, insist that that information is wrong without having proper proof yourself. You see, a, a, an expert witness by himself is a proof for a point. And, and if you want to refute that proof, you can bring other expert witnesses who say that it is not. So far, all you have mentioned is that Martin Hengel has found evidence that binding was used for crucifixions in another part of the world. But you're arguing from silence, because you have not a proof from Martin Hengel that binding was not used among the Romans. And here, these scholars have offered uh, information uh, to show that uh, binding uh, was used. Uh, I don't think we have uh, any reason to doubt the integrity of these uh, scholars. Now, if I had but said I it for myself, then you can challenge me. Okay, Shabir, bring me your proof. I brought you the proof here. Then right. you ask me for the proof for the proof. What you have shown me is a single book, and you haven't given me a statement out of it which shows that the, Rome, that the Romans used binding. Hengel, in his book, does provide 13 sources where the Romans used nails. Yes. And like I said, we can add Josephus to that. We can probably add Tacitus to it because he says that Christians were, were affixed to crosses, the uh, Latin term affixed, uh, and then they were set ablaze on fire, and they wouldn't use binding or else the ropes would burn. So nails make more sense there. If we take Tacitus there, well, then that would be an additional source and, and bring it up to 15. Yeah, but if so, you notice that this, you're arguing from silence because saying that nails were used does not deny that for some other victims, uh, ropes were used. Right, and you said if yourself. Have, if all the evidence we have says mm -hmm. nails, and we do have the four testimonies of the gospel since you're using them, um, I'll just point out that uh, uh, John mentions nails. In fact, Luke alludes to it when he says that Jesus showed his hands yes. to them. So if that's the case, we do have two reports that said nails. It seems to go in with the other reports that are available. And so. But you're not answering the, to my point, Mike. Well, the my point is, is that kind of, because it was known that nails were generally used, the gospel writers wrote that nails were used. Not because it was historically factually witnessed and recorded at the time, but because at the time when the disciples were writing, they wrote what normally happened at a crucifixion. Not only what normally happened, but as time went by, and they wanted to prove definitely that Jesus underwent the worst possible tortures, they improved the level of torture. So it went from Mark a little to Matthew and Luke further, and John even worse. And in Mel Gibson's movie, even <laughs> further still. So I'm mentioning Mel Gibson's movie, not because we're debating that, but because it illustrates what happened with the Gospels, the kind of imaginative work that went in. And the fact that Gibson can do that with us today, even though we have the written Gospels before us to see where he has actually uh, gone off on a tangent, uh, shows the kinds of imaginative work that could have been done before him prior to the availability of these written documents. So the first writers had much more of a latitude to present the case the way they thought it should be presented. And in fact, combing through the Gospels, this is what we find that they did. So that whereas in Mark's Gospel, Pilate is doubtful that Jesus had died so soon, in Mark and Luke, even though they are basically almost verbatim giving us the same story from Mark, they have nevertheless reworded it so that the doubt of Pilate is not expressed in Mark, Matthew and Luke. And Raymond Brown says that possibly the, reasons why, the reason why Matthew and Luke reworded it such is so that their readers should not also doubt, like Pilate, as to whether or not Jesus had actually died. And I think that uh, reminds me of the Quranic point, that those who differed concerning him were in doubt as to what happened, as to the matter. They were not sure that they actually killed him, and for certainly they killed him not. Some other interpretation is necessary here, 
And uh, in the light of the, if, if no one had claimed that he had resurrected from the dead, perhaps we would accept that he actually died, just like the historians do. And that's what they, they say, because they do not believe that he actually physically, bodily resurrected from the dead. So they say he died. But if uh, we are to, to say he resurrected from the dead, then we must question, did he really die or not? And when we look at the earliest shadow of evidence, uh, th there is no clear indication that he actually died on the cross. The Gospels say he died. All of them say he died. All of the Gospels say he rose from the dead. None of them say there was any doubt. So because I can't prove that nails were used, even though that's the testimony of the Gospels, because I can't prove that ropes weren't used instead, the Gospel writers are doubting whether Jesus died and rose? No, Mike, the Gospel writers are not doubting that Jesus died and rose. I don't think you're getting my point. The gospel writers are out to prove that Jesus died and rose. And the later the gospel, the more they try to prove it. And you can see that uh, after the first gospel is written, some questions are raised. And the later gospels try to eliminate those questions. For example, who carried the cross of Jesus? I mentioned in my opening presentation that some uh, second century Christians believed that Simon the Cyrene, was, uh, who was made to carry the cross of Jesus, was made to look like Jesus and crucified instead. Now, the Gospel according to John says that Jesus went out carrying his own cross. And then the next thing you know, he arrives at uh, Golgotha. So it, you cannot have it both ways. The, the first three Gospels has it that Simon the Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross because obviously Jesus was too weak to carry it. The Gospel according to John shows that Jesus is strong and powerful throughout. He doesn't get arrested, he hands himself over. Nobody dares to arrest him because they just fall back to the moment he says, I am he. Jesus hands himself over because he's deliberately dying for the sins of mankind. A very different picture than we have in the Synoptic Gospels. Now in the Gospel according to John, because Jesus is so strong throughout, he doesn't need anybody to carry his cross, but a more important point. Uh, people were reading the other Gospels and using it as a proof that possibly Simon was in fact crucified instead of Jesus. John did not want his Gospel to be read in this particular way. And so he has it that Jesus went out carrying his own cross. He, he emphasizes that point, not just simply that Jesus went out carrying his cross, but Jesus went out carrying his own cross, as it says in the NIV. Uh, there is an emphasis there because John wants to make sure that everybody knows that there's no Simon of Cyrene here to deal with. It's just Jesus. He's strong throughout. He goes up to the cross by himself. Nobody arrests him. Nobody can take his life from, away from him. He gives it up of his own accord. He lays it down, and he has the authority and power to take it up again. A very different Jesus, a very different gospel, a very different story, and you can see the evolution. So what you have to deal with is that evolution, and you have to show that the evidence for the actual death and physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is there in the earliest strata. It is not enough to say, well, you know, the later strata says this. Yeah, but and that's I, not my argument. That's my argument has been, it's in the earliest strata. That's what I've been emphasizing. No, but but you yet you keep going to the in, Gospels. I'm saying, mm -hmm. you who I'm over here on this hill. <laughs> no, but I'm in still fairness, waiting for you. Mike, in fairness, I have actually addressed you over on that other side of the hill. Because but all you're saying is the Gospels say this. It's kind of like your argument is, all right, the Gospels contain legend. Therefore, the sources that existed decades prior to the Gospel must be cut from the same cloth. And that doesn't necessarily follow. No, what I've shown is, that the an, is an evolution. You see, the earliest stage in the belief in the resurrection of Jesus was that God somehow raised Jesus back to life, even though people had seen him dying. 
that God rescued Jesus and raised him to himself. That's the earliest strata. No, it it's did not, not that he rescued him. I mean, there's nothing in the early strata that says rescue him. I mean, you presented the rescue theory, but there's no evidence for it. It's contrary to the eyewitness testimony. It's based on a single source written 600 years after Jesus with no contact with the eyewitness, and it's ad hoc. That is because it's a supernatural explanation with no evidence that's contrary to the evidence. It seems that it was constructed not so much in an attempt to rescue Jesus as it is to rescue Islam. No, I'm not speaking of rescue here as uh, rescue prior to death. Uh, what I'm saying is that the earliest belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as we can tell from the earliest sources, is that despite the fact that everyone had seen Jesus dying on the cross, God had somehow rescued Jesus and raised him to himself, so that Peter can proclaim in the Acts of the Apostles that uh, death could not hold him. And of course, because God was with him, rescuing him, raising him uh, from the dead, you can put it that way if you want. You mentioned uh, the uh, speech of Peter, which right, we are now referring right, so to. So you did say the earliest strata talks about Jesus being raised from the dead. Do you grant the, that? The earliest strata, well, we should first listen to the words, and then we'll talk about the interpretation, because there's something to be said about that. The passage which Paul is cite, uh, Peter is citing in the Acts of the Apostles is from the Psalms, Psalm 16. Read the commentary on Psalm 16. Uh, the New Jerusalem Bible, in its footnoting on that psalm, says that this actually refers to a person who has had a close brush with death. The psalm does not actually necessitate the person physically dying. So now to say that God raised this person from the dead does not necessarily in the ancient world require that the person had to be physically actually dead. You see, our conception of what involves death or what means death has changed over time. You mentioned previously N.T. Wright and his excellent book, This Thick, on the resurrection of the Son of God. If you read it throughout, you will see he mentions some of the conceptions that were there and some of which you refer to, but he also mentions the, the, the story Kalerho. In the story, Kalerho is beaten by her husband and she apparently dies and she is buried. But some grave robbers come and they, they are surprised to find her alive. Uh, they, they, they are scared off and Kalerho survives. And then, according to the story, as cited by N.T. Wright, she says, I was dead and I came back to life. Mm -hmm. Even though we know from the story that she was not dead. But this is how people might refer to things. If, if a guy is diagnosed with death today, he's kept in a morgue, he's watched for a little bit, and uh, in fact, he doesn't actually die. He might say, I came back from the dead, but we know he wasn't actually dead. Today, our conception of death has actually improved because we had put a person through an EEG, through an ECG. There are certain grimacing effects that we test for, five of them that are noted by Constance Jones in his book, uh, The Complete Book of Death and Dying. And after all of these tests, we keep a person to just watch him just to make absolutely sure. So it, it is possible that a person might appear to be dead in the ancient world and that he wasn't actually dead. But if that person survived, one would say that he actually came back from the dead. Documentation for this is found in an excellent book by uh, uh, Jan Bondesen, uh, his, uh, or Bonson. His uh, book is entitled Buried Alive. Uh, a terrifying history of our most primal fear. And what he has shown here is that throughout history, there have been difficulties identifying when exactly is a person finally dead. And he showed in particular in the time of Jesus, though that was, Jesus was not his particular concern, he's just simply going through the whole sweep of history. What he has shown is that in that time, people could not determine uh, when a person actually uh, had, uh, had died. 
And uh, in that uh, same book, we have uh, a quotation, this other book here. We have a quotation from uh, uh, one of the uh, Jewish uh, Talmud sources, uh, which uh, might help us to understand why the women disciples of Jesus went to the tomb. Listen to it. It says, the Babylonian Talmud stipulates, one should go out to the cemetery and check on the dead three days after the funeral, and one should not fear that by doing so he follows a Gentile practice. It happened that a checkup after three days discovered that a certain person was buried alive. This person lived for another 25 years, had sons, and then died. And the, the reference is here. Uh, see, they've actually given the reference, so if you ask me now, it is there. Okay. So, yeah, but the Talmud, uh, can I respond to some of this? Um, because you're giving me a whole lot here. Okay, we've shifted into the next quarter of the last quarter hour. Okay. We will be going to you for some questions in about 12 minutes. The, the Talmud is late. It's several hundred years after Jesus. So just because the Talmud mentions that in its day, when it was reporting this stuff, which could have been three, 400 years after Christ, that that was the um, way things were done, that doesn't mean that that's the way it was done in Jesus' day. In fact, um, you, you mentioned about how we can't be certain a person's dead. Well, because we don't have EEGs, I really don't think that they would have had much doubt that John the Baptist was dead, who had been beheaded. Yes. So um, now, even with this thing, that, with the Talmud, they may have gone to the tomb to check it out to see if the but person... You see, Mike, that, that is exactly my point. You see, John, the, once a person is beheaded, you're mm -hmm. sure he's dead. But you put a person on a cross, mm -hmm. you expect that after three days, by, through exhaustion and facing the elements and even the vultures, uh, who might come and pluck out your eye, then after, by three days' time, you will be dead. Uh, but then, if you take him down after a few hours, even Pilate wonders, are you sure he's dead? But of course, Pilate has an interest in preserving Jesus because he didn't want Jesus crucified in the first place. So I think if you make it your job to prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead, you actually have a difficult job. If you say that Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, Muslims and Christians can both believe that without having to prove it. Look, Jesus was one of the greatest persons who walked the, uh, the earth in all of history. He was a great teacher. We remember him for his memorable sayings, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule is something that uh, people wish to have in every religion, and we find the parallels for that in other religions through searching. But it's such a known teaching of Jesus, such beautiful teachings from a man, uh, the miraculous works that Muslims and Christians believe that he performed, the fact that he was born of a virgin, that he raised uh, the dead back to life, that he cured the leper, that he healed the blind. Muslims and Christians believe that. We do not need to prove it to the world, uh, but by making it your job that you have to prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and you have said that if you cannot prove this, then it would make Christianity appear to be false. You have hinged everything no, on it, this. if it was proved, disproved, if Christ has not been raised, then a person's faith is worthless. The burden of proof, it, I don't have to as a Christian. Most Christians aren't Christians because they prove Jesus rose from the dead, but yeah. they, they still believe it. May I, I comment on Pilate real quick? You mentioned there how Pilate, um, that he wanted to save Jesus. Um, I guess I have two comments. You've exerted a lot of time and effort this evening undermining the Gospels, and so I'm bewildered that now you would appeal to those very texts in order to prove your point. Because I've told you previously, I'm not saying that all of the Gospels are false. What I'm saying is that there has been an evolution among the Gospels, and in oh, okay. peeling back so the layers of evolution, Mike, you have not touched on that at all. You have not spoken anything about the evolution of the Gospels. You because have I'm not... on this other hill. <laughs> I presented evidence that's decades earlier. I'm still waiting for you to attack this hill. 
Now, the thing about Pilate, um, you said, okay, now Pilate wanted to rescue Jesus here. He, he didn't want to crucify him. And this is another thing that I'm kind of surprised at because critical scholars normally regard this as political propaganda by the early Christians and that it's not historical, whereas these same scholars accept the death of Jesus because it's so much more, it's so much more better attested. So if you're going to accept the Pilate story, then all the more you should accept the story of Jesus' death because there's much, going for, much more going for it. If you reject the Jesus' death, then all the more you should reject the Pilate because there's less going for it. Now, you see, you, I think your, your, your point here is built on what we might call epistemological confusion. Uh, there, there, is, there is a way in which we, we learn things. I didn't mean to be funny about that. I'm just trying to put my thoughts together and you know, we have to be quick. Uh, you see, we, we start with certain basic, basic assumptions. So basic assumption, I'm a Muslim. Therefore, I believe that uh, the Quran is the word of God. Therefore, I believe the, Quranic's de the Quran's depiction that God raised Jesus uh, uh, to himself and that his enemies did not kill him. And this might be explained in a variety of ways. Jeffrey Parinder, a Christian writer in his book, Jesus and the Quran, says that perhaps this actually means that the Jews didn't kill him because the Romans did. Or perhaps it means that uh, whereas they thought they killed him, they, they hadn't actually killed him, and it was God who killed him. And uh, many verses of the Quran can be cited in, in collusion with this to show that the Quran has this outlook, that it's not the enemy that kills the, the righteous person of God, it is God who takes the life of the person. And moreover, it could mean that even though they had actually physically killed him, he is still alive with God. And the Quran says that the martyrs are alive with God. And that would reflect back with what I said about Abraham and Moses from the lips of Jesus himself. And uh, so from that epistemological perspective, there are many different conclusions that I can form. Now, if I leave that, uh, that situation behind and pretend for a moment that I'm not going with the Quran, then I have to turn to the Gospels and the histories that are built on the Gospels. Now, if I take the position of the historians, as you're suggesting I would do, and deny uh, that Pilate uh, was reticent, and if I perceive of Pilate as a very brutal individual who wanted Jesus dead, then I would conclude with uh, other historians, with Michael Grant, for example, in his book, An Historian's View of the Gospels, and other such historians, that Jesus actually died on the cross, and that he did not physically, bodily resurrect from the dead, that his disciples had an extraordinary vision of him, because his disciples wanted so badly to believe that Jesus uh, was alive with God, and so they wanted to believe it so badly that they saw him. And, and that would and this to would Paul, not, too. Say again? Paul and James, they didn't want to see him alive. And what about the empty tomb? Empty tomb is, I think, does away with the vision theory. No, but, well, here, Paul, uh, Paul's uh, uh, vision, as you're saying, as an enemy of Jesus, uh, there is something to say about Paul's vision. Because Paul himself, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he uh, said that, uh, Jesus, uh, that the devil might appear as a bright, shining light, so that many might be deceived. So Paul's testimony that he saw this light cannot be a, a full and final convincing argument of a physical nature that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. Second, you mentioned James. Now what has been found in the evolution of the Gospels over time is that starting with Mark, the family of Jesus had been given a bad rap. It's not like in the, in the Mel Gibson movie where Mary is everywhere there with Jesus by his side and, and uh, you know, uh, kissing his feet and getting the blood on her, on her lips. In the, in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, starting with Mark, uh, the, the, the family of Jesus looked bad, and so too his disciples. 
And so, of course, his, uh, his brothers don't believe in him. His mother doesn't even seem to understand him in Mark's gospel. So Jesus denounces her, denounces her earlier on. And so that is there for a reason, because later Christianity would follow the line of Paul, and because there was tension between Paul and the original disciples of Jesus and the family of Jesus, so Paul was celebrated, and the family and disciples of Jesus were denigrated. So James comes off as a, as a disbeliever, and later on he is the head of the church. Now you have said that is because he has seen a vision of Jesus, but that's not necessarily so. If we go on that strictly historically, historians would say that the fact that James was the head of the church known in Jerusalem, that is the proof that in fact he was not a disbeliever in Jesus, and that... In fact, the Gospels have given him a bad rap that he did not deserve. Okay, so okay, now, turn it around. You do not have still a, a proof. Let's, let's bring this to a close. We're a little off proportion in terms of who's saying what or how much is, <laughs> is going on here. It's difficult to follow, I know. It is. And again, we want to keep the proportion even. Let's uh, have you ask a final question of uh, Mike and let uh, Mike respond to that before we go to questions from the audience. Uh, Mike, I have uh, shown in, the, in my discussion about the evolution of the Gospels how in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus appears to the 11 disciples on, on Easter day, uh, whereas in the Gospel according to John, Thomas was absent. Now, I've said that John has deliberately worded it this way so that he can create a new event for the further appearance of Jesus. So John is expanding the story, giving us more proof, more physical hard evidence to deal with. How do you deal with this uh, contradiction of facts here and the fact that we can see that John is doing this? Uh, how do you reconcile these different appearance narratives? I guess first I'd say I'm still on the Southern Hill, <laughs> you know, and that's the Gospels you're referring to. But I don't think John is so much is expanding as we have Luke contracting. In Luke's Gospel, he, it seems like everything happens on Easter. He appears to the Emmaus disciples, then he comes back, the Emmaus disciples come back and they say, hey, you know, the Lord appeared to us. And the disciples say, yeah, yeah, he is risen. And he appeared to Peter. And uh, then Jesus appears in their midst. And then he is, uh, comes out and commissions them as well. So it seems like everything happens in Jerusalem on Easter in, in Luke. But in Luke's sequel, Acts, you go to chapter 13, verse 31, and he says, that Jesus, after having been raised, he met them in Galilee and accompanied them back in Jerusalem. So he kind of expands a little bit there and tells this. I don't think you have the citation correct. I'm sorry. No, it's 1331. Yeah, the, the, the reference is correct, but what you're citing is not in there. You see, what Peter is saying is that Jesus okay, did not appear to, all of, all, to everyone, but only to those who had accompanied him from Jerusalem, from Galilee, rather. Right, so right, it's not but that's that, the disciples there. And yeah, but, but you see, you're, you're putting it differently. You're saying that Jesus appeared to them in Galilee and then accompanied them all the way back to Jerusalem. Whereas, what Peter is saying there is that Jesus did not appear to everyone, but he appeared only to those disciples who had accompanied him in the first instance all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. All right, here's what it said. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So my point is this. Luke says it's from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he's talking about these different appearances, whereas Luke in his gospel contracts them into one day and one appearance, well, a couple of different appearances, Emmaus disciples to Peter, 
to all of the disciples at that point. So the way I answer the question you're giving is that John is not expanding in his gospel. Luke is contracting in his gospel as evidence from what we have. Can you read us the same verse from the NIV? Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was looking at it in Greek. And, and for many days, uh, please don't laugh, um, I, I didn't mean that to be funny, and I really want to make sure we have good communication up here. Um, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Mm -hmm. so, so this is not necessarily saying that Jesus appeared to them in Galilee and then kept accompanying them. You're not talking about the resurrected Jesus being in the company of the disciples traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem here. You're talking about Jesus appearing to those disciples who had previously accompanied him all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. I mean, we know what that reference is too because the whole gospels were about that. The disciples, along with Jesus, making a long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's not post-resurrection, it's pre-crucifixion. Oh, I, I don't see that at all. In, in fact, uh, that's not what it's saying there. And in Mark, if you go back to the earliest gospel source, you really like the gospels this evening, so I, I'll go to them. Um, in Mark, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, the angel tells the women to go tell the disciples to go meet Jesus in Galilee as he told you. And then you go back to chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus says, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee. So, so in Mark you have the promise, right? and of course the later Gospels will deliver that promise. But in Mark's Gospel, the promise is not actually delivered. The angel repeats the promise. Right. But then, in Matthew's Gospel, it's delivered. And so Matthew even has the angel's wording. Are you suggesting wording. that an appearance didn't take place in Mark? What I'm saying is that Mark does not report the actual appearance. Right. That would come later. But are, are you saying that Mark was unaware of an appearance? Uh, we don't know what's in the mind of Mark. But if Mark does not give us the actual report of the, of the appearance, then we do have an evolution here among the Gospels. It, an earlier Gospel promising that Jesus will, will appear, but doesn't say he actually appeared. Right, but if and you then, want to base it on ifs and stuff, I, I don't think that's, that's very well, strong. But there's no if. But there's close. no if, Mike. Okay. Yes. Take a breath, guys. We have mics in the back uh, here, and what I will uh, do is probably go from one to the other, and I would like to invite people to uh, ask a question, address it to one or both of our speakers here, but then uh, I'll ask you to refrain from a follow-up question because I don't want a debate going out this way. So the gentleman in the uh, short-sleeved shirt Stripes? Sure. My name is Jim Fox. I live locally, and it's a privilege to be here in this beautiful venue for the debate. And uh, my question is for Mr. Ali. Um, what is your response to the um, Don Richardson's book? Actually, I'm responding to your initial statement that 911, quote, quote, hijacked a b balanced understanding of Islam. I'm wondering what your response is to Don Richardson's book, The Secrets of the Quran, which is a hermeneutically rigorous book as well as a cross-culturally sensitive uh, apologetic that revealing that the Quran is very pro-violent. Uh, what is your response to that, Mr. Ali? 
I have not read uh, Don Richardson's book, but I have read the Quran and I have combed through the commentaries on the Quran. And uh, I do not find the Quran to be a violent book. I find the Quran to be a set of revelations given to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, dealing with the real situations that he faced at the time. And the fledgling Muslim community faced uh, real dangers. And whereas Jesus on whom be peace was in a situation where uh, it would not have been prudent to, to respond militarily uh, to the Romans, uh, on the other hand, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, under God's guidance, uh, found it um, necessary to respond uh, militarily to protect himself and the fledgling Muslim community to ensure that what would be uh, later on known as the burgeoning uh, Muslim civilization would have been possible at all. And uh, I do not see the Quran, in fact, teaching uh, a, a, a violent set of teachings, but I see the Quran encouraging uh, democratic pluralism uh, just as described in the book by Abdulaziz uh, Sachidina, the book entitled The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism. Okay. I'm going to encourage both questioners and answers to keep this on the brief side so that we can get as many questions and answers in. Sir. Um, I'd like to uh, pose this to Mr. Ali. Um, you said that if you found some better evidence that you're, you're open to that. I, I don't believe that the evidence that about the uh, empty tomb is the best evidence proving Christianity. Uh, the area dealing with fulfilled prophecy, I believe to be the strongest argument, even though it's not you know, often the one that's used. You can go back to the Old Testament and uh, 2,000 out of 2,500 prophecies have been fulfilled. Many of these are very specific about destruction of cities. One of them has to do um, okay, excuse with, me. We'll we'll need to have a question okay. rather than well. Well, that's the that's why I was going to ask. Is you know, if you take these these prophecies and um, say that they occur by chance, the chance of that occurring is like uh, ten to the quadrillion of power. So is that the position that you're taking? Unfulfilled prophecies or mm. fulfilled prophecies. The argument. Uh, yes, uh, the the questioner is saying here that uh, there are many fulfilled prophecies. So what he's referring to is that the Old Testament said something and then it actually happened. Or the New Testament said something and then it actually happened. Well, if that is the case, I don't see that a Muslim needs to refute that. A Muslim does not need to refute Christianity. A Muslim does not need to refute the Bible. Uh, a Muslim stands uh, uh, on his or her belief in the Quran, which in fact rests on the validity of the previous faiths before it. Uh, the Quran comes to uh, take that revelation a little further. So if um, our Jewish friends stopped with Malachi um, and the other prophets before Malachi, including Moses and Abraham and, and so on, then uh, Christians have gone further by receiving the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And uh, Muslims believe that they have gone even further than that in receiving the revelation of God through the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So if uh, you, you show by these prophecies that the Bible is a, is a good book, it contains revelation from God, a Muslim is not averse to that. But if we're dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, what I have tried to show tonight in a brief way is that sometimes the writers of the Gospels wrote about the crucifixion, not okay, as it... We're, we're shifting topics now. The Fine. issue was fulfilled prophecy. All right, sir. Um, my question is also for Shabir Ali. Um, 
you've started off with a verse from the Quran that, that stated that uh, that Jesus did not, in fact, die, and you've pro you've postulated several ways that that could have happened, that either he didn't die or that God put someone in his place. If you're even to defend a position that Jesus didn't die, then how would you um, how would you respond to Strauss's famous critique that says that uh, Jesus near death was in uh, a tomb for several days, resuscitated out of a supposed coma, uh, pushed a, a you know one and a half ton rock up a hill, fought through Roman centurions, and then walked miles to get to uh, the, the disciples who were hiding in a room. So how would you respond to that to keep that postulation that Jesus might not have died? Well, your, your question is based on assumptions uh, which come from the reading of all of the Gospels as they are now earlier and later stratas all put together. Uh, for example, the Gospels relating about the empty tomb. Notice that in the earliest uh, strata of evidence that we have from Paul's writings, there is no mention that the tomb is actually empty. Paul says he was uh, crucified, he died, he was uh, buried, and he raised from the dead. But Paul does not say that the tomb was found empty. And uh, scholars such as James Dunn have uh, written, for example, in his book, uh, The Evidence for uh, Jesus, that uh, what Christians actually believe in is recreation. So it's not the original body that comes to be resurrected. So it doesn't matter what happens to the original body. It could be blown to bits, could be eaten by sharks, would disintegrate. But what God does is resurrects us with a re created body. So the belief that Jesus was raised from, from the dead does not necessitate that his tomb must be found empty. The idea of the empty tomb, that he had to roll this huge stone back to get out of there and so on after resuscitating, uh, are based on information which is there in the later strata of evidence, evidence concerning the empty tomb. But if we take the earlier strata and we assume that everyone works in a, in, a, in a usual expected manner, then we can see the hand of God in saving Jesus. Because if Pilate does not want to kill Jesus and his uh, cohorts know that, they okay, would not give him the again, most we're punishment. Mo we're moving on. Off onto other I issues and to topic. That? This was basically a question about the swoon theory. Could I respond uh, to that real quick? Just one, give me 30 seconds. Okay. Okay. 30 seconds. Um, he mentioned how James Dunn uh, said that it may not have been a bodily resurrection. And that's, that's correct. He's correct on that. Dunn does say that. Um, however, here's another thing Dunn says, and this concerns the beliefs of the disciples. He writes in his book, Jesus Remembered, both Luke and John simply reinforced the earlier Christian conviction that post-Easter faith could be no other than resurrection faith, belief that Jesus had been raised bodily from the tomb. If then the talk of core belief is appropriate, the core belief of the first Christians was of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Okay. Sir. Mr. Ali, I'm struck when I read through the Quran and its commentaries how frequently it insists that Muhammad is superior to Jesus Christ, a greater prophet. And when I talk to Muslims about this, I say to them, the Quran teaches the virgin birth of Jesus. Was Muhammad born of a virgin? They say no. And then I say, the Quran never says that Muhammad lived a perfect life. And yet Muslims believe that Jesus did live without sin. And then I say to them, uh, Jesus performed many miracles, and they grant this. Muhammad did not perform many miracles. And so I put the question to you. Jesus was virgin born. Muhammad was not. 
Jesus was perfect, Muhammad was not without sin, and Jesus performed many miracles, Muhammad did not, yet Muhammad's greater than Jesus. Clear that up for me. Yeah, I think it is not the Muslim's duty to try and prove one prophet uh, to be superior to another. And in fact, a Muslim would actually go out of his bounds in trying to do that. For the Quran uh, insists that Muslims should believe in all of the prophets and not make distinctions among them. And in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, one of the most authentic collections of the prophet's sayings, though not all of his sayings therein are authentic, um, have, uh, has put it that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did not like people comparing him to other prophets, saying that he is superior to Moses, or, for example. And uh, the same saying has it that he says that uh, Jonah, the son of Matta, is, uh, is the most excellent among human beings. And uh, furthermore, that he praised uh, Joseph in this way of comparison, because he said Joseph was, the prof was a prophet and was the son of a prophet who was also the son of a prophet, Joseph, Jacob, uh, Isaac. And so the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did not like this kind of comparison. So for Muslims to insist that he was uh, greater than Jesus would be uh, to step out of their bounds. But Muslims do recognize that uh, the faith of Islam uh, was proclaimed as a universal faith. And uh, they see that uh, the faith of Islam revealed through the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was meant uh, to, to be universal in a way in which uh, the teachings of Jesus was not initially. The teachings of Jesus uh, initially was limited to a certain closed circle. And Jesus is quoted in Matthew's Gospel as saying, uh, do not go unto uh, anyone except the lost sheep. Uh, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's instructed his disciples not to go in among the Samaritans and so on. So it will be later that Jesus' faith becomes a universal preaching, but Muslims understand that uh, it, through time, God has sent individual prophets to certain limited scopes uh, of operation, but then sent Muhammad in, in a kind of a universal mission. And uh, uh, Given that, Muslims would think that Muhammad is special in this particular way. And of course, Muhammad is special for us because we imitate him, we follow him, we pray like he prayed, and we read the same scripture which was revealed through him. Okay. Sir. Uh, good evening. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Greetings, uh, Michael. Can I just pose this to both of you, if I can? Uh, in regards to Jesus praying in the uh, garden, he uh, clearly prayed for uh, God to pass the cup of death from him, which clearly indicates that he really didn't want to die. Uh, in connection to this, can you both read uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and just kind of give a little commentary on that? If possible, thank you. Want to go first, Mike? Um, sure, I'll just need to, let me read Hebrews 5, 7. Unless you'd like to go first. Okay. Fine. Hebrews uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 7. I'm reading from the New American Bible. It says, In the days when he was in the flesh, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, this passage may actually be cited in support of the idea that God rescued Jesus. Now, when we see Jesus going through all of that torture, or we read about him in the Gospels going through uh, this uh, suffering, uh, our, uh, our wish is that God would save him. Why do we have this wish? Because we have compassion on Jesus. And uh, naturally, the Father would have had uh, even more compassion on him 
And uh, Malachi, in fact, uh, if we read that in conjunction with this, uh, supports the view that uh, God listened to the prayer of Jesus and did something about it. Uh, because Malachi says that he will have compassion on him as a father has compassion for his uh, son. Now, a father having compassion for his son and having the power to rescue him from this torture wouldn't let him go through that. Um, God can forgive the sins of people, I believe, and uh, there would be no reason to allow Jesus to go through that suffering when, in the end, we still have to seek forgiveness of God even if Jesus died for our sins. So God could have done that more directly, saved Jesus from this suffering, and in any case, the belief that Jesus uh, uh, was rescued by God is a belief that Muslims and Christians share. Okay. I think it's a, a good question. I'm not certain what the cup was. Uh, to, to be honest with you, uh, brutally honest, that's not, not, not something that I've studied. So I, I can't answer what Jesus' actual request was when he said, um, if it's your will, may this cup pass for me. Was he referring to the sins of the world being dumped on him? or the brutal treatment he was just going to experience, I just don't know. I, I know when I was in college and in Bible school that this question came up, even without reference to this verse in Hebrews, and it was just something I, I just don't know, so I can't answer that. But I have to take issue with Mr. Ali's interpretation of the verse and say, well, this supports rescue theory, because elsewhere in Hebrews, it talks about how Christ died for our sins once for all. And since Hebrews is very clear in saying Christ died, then therefore to say, well, maybe the author of Hebrews here is saying we got to be open to rescue theory, that doesn't make sense to me. So I, I would just have to say I, I don't understand what it was uh, that Jesus was praying. Uh, I'm sure others do, uh, like some of the uh, professors here this evening. Um, but I would say that it certainly doesn't uh, backup rescue theory. Okay. Sir. As you could guess, my question is for Mr. Ali. Um, uh, at, at first, you, you said that, that Christ didn't, in fact, get crucified. And then you went on to say that perhaps someone that looked like him was crucified and perhaps Simon was crucified. My question is this, and I hope you don't try to, to, try to get out of this by saying you don't have to prove it. Uh, my question is, do you, in fact, have a consistent argument against the overwhelming evidence that does point to the physical death and resurrection of Christ. Do you have something that is consistent, or do you just, are you just trying to poke holes in the, in the evidence that exists? Uh, in answer to that, I can say that uh, what I think I've presented is a consistent case that you have in the earliest strata of evidence, not, not reading all of the evidence and giving them all the same weight and value, but you see that the story is evolving before your eyes. You see that in the earliest gospel, there is a doubt that Jesus actually died. And there's a minimal amount of uh, torture that he goes through. Whereas a person might be on the cross for several days, he's there only for a few hours. So, and given that, and seeing that the later gospels are trying to go out of their way to further develop the story and prove that he actually died, I would say that uh, we cannot be certain that he actually died on the cross. Now, if you put him in the, in the tomb and roll a, a great stone against the mouth of the tomb and leave him there for a few weeks, he would surely die. Uh, but uh, if you open the tomb early enough, then perhaps he could survive. And so uh, we, we are not surprised then to read that the Jewish scholars go into Pilate's court and they say, well, put guards to the tomb because it is possible that, you know, the second 
uh, deception will be greater than the first. Now, what was the first deception? Uh, the Jews are obviously worried that Jesus was taken down from the cross and his legs were not broken. So if you put a vict crucified victim like that after being a few hours on the cross into an open, airy chamber, and uh, you leave it there, then thieves can come open the tomb. They, that person can come out just like Calirho in the story from N.T. Wright. And uh, Jesus could reappear to his disciples, and then God can take him up. Muslims and Christians believe that God miraculously resurrected Jesus, raised him up. Whether bodily or spiritually, Muslims and Christians may have different beliefs over a wide spectrum on this. Some may be very traditional, some may be more liberal, and some somewhere in between. Uh, or you can have a scenario where uh, Jesus, uh, on whom be peace, uh, just simply died on the cross, but the fact that he gave up his spirit into the hands of the Father, that is in a way in which people can understand that Jesus ascended to heaven. It doesn't matter what happened to his body. He is in the grace of God. There are many different possible scenarios. I cannot argue historically to say that it actually happened this particular way, but what I'm saying is that in response to those apologists who say that the whole faith hinges on the resurrection, and if he did not resurrect from the dead, then the whole faith is in vain. Now, the difficulty is created because his crucifixion is historically verified. Historians will agree that Jesus died by crucifixion. So if it is so well known and acceptable to everyone, Jew, Muslim, Christian, atheist alike, then you only have few people believing that he actually resurrected from the dead. Now you have to have as reasonable proof that he resurrected from the dead. If you don't have that, then you have the proof that he died greater than the proof that he resurrected from the dead. And the proof that he died is the proof that he died as a blasphemer under the curse of God. So the idea that he was uh, uh, vindicated by God by his resurrection depends on uh, lesser proof, and the idea that he was convicted as a blasphemer and dying under the curse of God is much well, well established. Okay, let's come to an end with that particular response, and we'll go to our next question. Um, Mr. Ali, this question is uh, for you. Um, you kept talking about early strata, um, the early creeds and I think what Mike was was getting at is he was giving sources predating the Gospels talking about Josephus and Paul and even Tacitus and that kind of thing and he was posing the question to you about what ancient what other sources can you give to support your, the fact that Jesus didn't rise bodily. Now, I can pull out a book from any library in the year 2000 and support, you know, an a priori objection or a priori rejection, but what ancient sources coming as close to a few months can you give supporting that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, we would not have to prove that a person did not rise from the dead. It is a reasonable assumption that a person who lived 2,000 years ago and is no longer with us is dead. But if, if someone says that somebody had resurrected from the dead, we would ask for proof. And this is what Thomas was doing in John's story. Thomas is asking for proof. Now, uh, we have in the New Testament early writings from Paul uh, who saying that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We have uh, Roman and other historians. But all of these are writings which were written well into the middle of the first century, about uh, 20 years after the event. Now, 20 years later, you could not go and open a tomb and show that you have the dead body there because there was no DNA evidence, there were no dental records to prove that this is the same individual. You could not go find a decaying corpse and pull him through the streets of Jerusalem to prove that this is actually Jesus. 
And notice what we have in the gospel stories. The gospel stories are actually explaining to us why everyone did not know about this. Why the thing is being preached later on. Because they're saying that Jesus only appeared to his chosen disciples. He didn't go to Pilate, for example, or Pilate's wife. Did he go to his mom? Did anyone ask his mom, Mary, how do you feel now that your son has actually conquered death and is appearing to everybody? Did he appear to you also? No record of Jesus appearing to Mary or to Pilate or to the Jewish Sanhedrin, just to his chosen disciples for 40 days. And then he ascends into heaven. And then finally, 10 days later, they're at Pentecost. Then they preach it for the first time that Jesus is alive. Nothing about the empty tomb in the Acts of the Apostles at this point. You see? So now, 50 days later even, if anybody wants to challenge it, there is nothing to challenge. It's just a faith that people have. Moreover, uh, the audience in Acts of the Apostles do not seem to want to challenge this. They just simply believe uh, just by hearing. At first, they thought the disciples are drunk. And then the, the, the way in which the preaching is delivered, they think this makes sense. This is true. Let's believe in it. So the, the storyline that is given there does not uh, give us convincing reason for thinking that in the earliest strata of evidence, uh, there is uh, the proof of the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I think in this sense, uh, Mike has misread uh, James Dunn. I would encourage you, Mike, to read James Dunn's book, The Evidence for Christ, in which he's dealing with these matters particularly. Because James Dunn has gone through the layers of the, of the uh, narration, and he has shown where the later stratas, especially Luke and John, uh, have improved the story to show that Jesus actually physically resurrected from the dead, and whereas the earlier stratas did not uh, actually have that belief. So okay. James... Can I respond? Yes. Can I respond to that? Um, first of all, uh, Mr. Ali is mistaken in saying that the, the disciples weren't claiming this, that this was the later strata. We can go back to this early kerygma that we were talking about here. Uh, scholars date it back that early and trace it to the disciples themselves. Um, you say, well, well Paul, Paul knew the eyewitnesses and he was saying that they were claiming bodily resurrection. And Mr. Ali said a little earlier that um, he didn't say empty tomb. Well, remember, the concept of resurrection in antiquity was it always, always involved a body. And so if you were to go to t Paul and say, well, Paul, why didn't you mention the empty tomb? He said, well, what do you mean? I said resurrection. So I, I don't see a problem there. Um, then you said there's no record of an appearant, Jesus appearing to the women. Well, what about all four Gospels? Um, and then you cite Acts. Well, that's even later than the Gospels. If you don't like the Gospels, why are you choosing Acts and taking reports out of there? And then you mentioned James Dunn, and, and he has this um, book that I, I haven't written, read that book, but I have read his most recent one. And this one, Jesus Remembered, where the quote came from, was written just last year. So, um, in fact, I just he and I corresponded by email just the other day a couple of times, and he certainly believes in resurrection, and he believes that the original disciples were claiming that Jesus had risen, been resurrected from the dead. All right, let's yeah, go. No, okay, we're going to give these folks a chance. You'll have a, a, an opportunity for a final statement as well a little bit later. All right. Uh, yes, good evening. Uh, my question is um, about the cross, and it's just a question that I've had that maybe I could get a comment from Mr. Lacona and Mr. Shabir. I was wondering, um, being that Jesus never asked to be crucified, and I'm wondering if he had the choice, would he have chosen the cross as his symbol? And being that he was put on the cross against his will, 
why has the cross now become um, such a sacred representation of Christianity? And if he had his choice, would he want that to be um, a representative of him? I'd say it's certainly an interesting question, but we could only, any answer that I would give would be pure speculation. Um, we just don't have any comments of Jesus. I'm certain if Jesus had the option, he would have rather have been beheaded than crucified. Um, but that option wasn't afforded him. Now, I, I think that Jesus would not have chosen this as, as a symbol uh, for his message. I think that if we read the New Testament, the message of Jesus uh, was not a message of the cross. And the earliest gospel uh, that, we, that, that we know of today is the Q gospel, which is a hypothetical document reconstructed uh, from uh, parallel sayings in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke has uh, 235 sayings, uh, which uh, uh, scholars believe came from an earlier gospel, which they have named Q from the German word quella for source. And whether it was a written or oral source is now in some dispute. Many scholars think it was a written source. But that earliest gospel did not have anything about uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. His message was not about the, the cross. And if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is there in Matthew's Gospel and based partly on Q, we can see this for ourselves. They are just beautiful teachings to live by. And uh, the idea that, Jesus, uh, that, that the cross of Jesus is the central theme of Jesus' teachings is what has been introduced by Paul, where he says, I have resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So Paul made this the central uh, point of Christianity, and uh, that is the point that uh, necessitated the proof that he resurrected also from the dead, because if he was crucified and not resurrected, we have a problem. Okay. Can I come next? Can I uh, respond a little? Why don't you save that for your five minutes or <laughs> the end here? We want to try to get some more people in if possible. Yes, sir. I think as, I think as an answer for her question, maybe we should be wearing empty tombs around our necks instead of crucifixes. <laughs> but... Uh, an observation I wanted to make was uh, Romans were professional executors. They knew the signs of death, and if they were commanded to kill someone and failed in that, then there would, uh, there would be reparations. Their uh, commander-in-chief would punish them. So if I were a Roman soldier, I would make it my responsibility to know that that man was dead, lest I should be killed. But my question involves something you said in your earliest statement. I mean, you're a your opening statement, you said that forgiveness means that no one pays for your sins. Uh, I want to allude to a, uh, um, an illustration evangelicals use of a child who's broken the speed limit and been thrown in jail, and the father or the mother comes in, and they pay the debt. Okay, The debt is paid, and in that, that represents their forgiveness. And I think that it's logical to me that there has to be a payment for any kind of um, uh, criminal act. And this is present in Christianity, but you said that Allah does not demand such. My question is, is Allah just in that? And not having um, force, ha making there be a payment. And if you don't mind, we'll ask for a 30-second answer. Yeah, <laughs> 30-second answer. I have to be really quick. Uh, first, about uh, the Roman executioners. Pilate was on the side of Jesus. Uh, his wife was a believer in Jesus. The Roman centurion at the foot of the cross was a believer in Jesus because he said this man is innocent. According to another narrative, he said truly this man was the son of God. So Jesus had friends in high places. 
uh, to say that they had to necessarily kill him, I think is stretching even what the Gospels have narrated. So if our epistemology is based on the Gospels, we have to conclude that even from that, from the earliest chapter of the Gospels, we do not have firm evidence that he actually died on the cross if someone would claim that he resurrected uh, from the dead. If nobody claims that, we would say he actually did right. die. There's about the 30. justice, do you allow me to say something no, about the I'm justice? Right? <laughs> 30 seconds. Yes. We'll Respecting Mr. Shabir, I have a question regarding God's integrity. Uh, if you can In, make it a 30 At the beginning question. of your, uh, at the opening statement, you said God forgives whom he wants, and there are others he doesn't. And I was wondering about that. Also, that you mentioned, when I mean, you uh, quoted from Surah 4, that it appeared that uh, Jesus was crucified. Um, it kind of gives me the notion that maybe God was into magic, um, deluding all these large crowds of people that somebody else appears to be as Jesus to be crucified. And why would God be uh, a respecter of person to, when, when somebody has instigated the crowd, to not allow him to die, but put somebody else in his place? I also noted, okay, I think, secondly. Okay, I think that'll do it. 30 <laughs> yeah, um, you, you said that I said that God forgives whom he wants and does not forgive whom he does not want. Uh, I didn't actually say that, so you came with a prepared question, but that's okay, because uh, uh, Muslims believe that God can forgive whom he wants, but he does not do that arbitrarily. He forgives those who deserve it, those who try, who seek forgiveness, and so on. The second point about the crucifixion, this is one of the reasons that you mentioned why even Fakhr Arazi objected to the common theories about somebody substituting for Jesus, because he said that if that were true, then we would have to deny many events in history. We would not know who is who and if somebody's looking like somebody else. And this is why many of the commentators in our modern time would feel that what the verse actually means is that even though it appeared to them that they had actually killed Jesus, they had not actually done so, but in some way, God had rescued Jesus and raised him to himself. In some mysterious way, we're not to know how. Okay. Good evening. In the opening presentation, a logical argument was presented, and unfortunately, we never really examined that argument. Being a student and a fan of summary and clarity, could we very briefly examine each premise and then maybe two, maximum three sentences why each participant believes that premise is uh, valid or invalid. I think what we'll do is say that if these gentlemen choose to respond to it for the closing five minutes, they'll have a block of time to respond to that. And I want to get just a couple more questions Thank you. quickly. With all the comments here on James uh, Dunn, I'm, I'm tempted to say that I studied with him for four years in England, but I won't go into that anymore. We said enough about him already, I think. Uh, Mr. Ali, appreciate your presentation this evening. Uh, if Jesus was not the one crucified, or if he was crucified but he didn't die, I'm wondering why we don't hear something about him in his ongoing years. What happened to him? Is there any record? Did he go someplace else, or did he, or, or would not the best assumption be to assume that he was crucified, he did die, and in some sense he was raised, whether or not you have a a kind of physical resurrection as we think of it, but in some sense, some kind of resurrection. When, what do you think about that? Yes, in response to that, uh, the, the Ahmadiyyas have actually said, as I alluded to earlier, that he walked all the way to Kashmir, he died and he's buried there. But uh, the majority of Muslims have not accepted that. And it seems to be historically untenable. I think a tenable um, 
position is to say, and this is based on faith, it's not historical fact, we could not prove it happened, but a tenable position is to say that uh, Jesus was taken down prematurely from the cross as we know he was, uh, that he was still alive in the tomb, but uh, in the tomb he met his final end. And the end has been described by Muslim scholars variously. Some have said that God caused him to die and raised him to himself, and some have said that God put him to sleep and raised him to himself. It amounts to the same thing. That physical body which was there is no longer there. Some believe in his physical resurrection, that God took that very physical body up into heaven. Again, this has to be based on faith, and it is not something that could be historically proved, nor could it be historically denied or disproved unless one denies miracles, and neither Muslims nor Christians deny miracles. All right, one last question. Hi, I'd like to uh, address this question to both of you. And um, I was just thinking, uh, specifically in terms of the rescue theory, um, you seem to grant that Pilate was uh, reticent about uh, crucifying Jesus. And so my question is, is that if you grant that Pilate was um, hesitant about concerning Jesus, wouldn't that be an implicit evidence for a more severe scourging um, so that Pilate could satisfy uh, the uh, accusers of Jesus' demand for punishment and avoid the crucifixion? So wouldn't that, couldn't that be an implicit evidence for it if you would grant that, that he was hesitant to crucify Jesus? Yes. In, in fact, if we were to say that, then we would say that Jesus, Pilate would make a convincing case that he's really uh, beating Jesus up, and then everyone would leave him alone. And apparently he has done, uh, to, to a certain extent, uh, what you're saying. But the, the beating would not have been so severe as to debilitate him completely or to injure him permanently. And uh, so Pilate has him scourged to, to uh, satisfy the Jews, and he brings him and says, Behold the man, but they're still calling for his crucifixion. And Pilate kept looking for a way to save him. So maybe Pilate did find a way to save him. We just don't know. The Gospels do not say. All right. Thank you very much for your questions. I think uh, if you want to grab these gentlemen after, uh, there's going to be, uh, they're going to be in a couple of rooms off to the side as individuals. And you can go and talk to them there in the screening rooms. But uh, again, if you uh, would care to take a seat, we're going to have our closing five minutes from each of these gentlemen. And let me see what's the program say here. Oh, Mike, you're up first. Well, I would like to thank Regent University and Gordon McAllister for hosting tonight's debate. This is a beautiful facility in order to have this, and it's just they've treated me very well. And Shabir, I'd like to thank you and your organization for inviting me to debate you. I have to make a confession, and this comes, I am completely honest, as anybody who has known me in this process can testify. When your organization first contacted me in September or October, uh, and I learned it was you that I was being asked to debate, I was quite intimidated because I know that you debate all the time and, and you're really good at this. And it took a full month and just prayed, and is this something that I should do? Because this is only my second debate. And I just want to tell you that I've really enjoyed tonight's debate. I just have enjoyed our very cordial exchanges. And I, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I'd like to ask you all, how will you now answer the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? I think that this evening, we've seen some good evidence in my judgment. And um, the eminent New Testament historian N.T. Wright comments in the book that Shabir and I have mentioned this evening. He says, what we are after is high probability, and this is to be attained by examining all the possibilities all the suggestions, and asking how well they explain the phenomena. 
So in light of this, I'd like to take a moment and just examine the two theories that have been put forth this evening. First of all, I put forth Jesus' resurrection, that he was resurrected, and certainly this explains all the evidence that we've looked at, the three facts. It easily explains the, Jesus' death by crucifixion. It easily explains the empty tomb. It easily explains why a number of people, both friend and foe, sincerely believed that Jesus had been resurrected and appeared to them. Moreover, it, it seems to me that all alternate theories that attempt to explain this data have failed. Now I'd like to take a moment and look at Shabir's rescue theory. Now I would grant that it does account for the empty tomb, but that's all. The problems I have with it is there's no evidence for it. In addition, in order to explain the data, he has to strain the gospel texts. It ignores strong and historical and medical evidence in order to explain his religious beliefs. You notice he said, well, he pretty much gave, said, yes, historians, all historians believe the death, but the Quran says this and I'm a Muslim. Kind of along the argument, the Quran says that I believe it and that settles it for me. So I don't have to do that with Christianity. So as N.T. Wright says in that book, he, he would, I think he would say, Shabir, you're building castles in the air. And so we need not feel obligated to rent a room. Not only does the rescue theory ignore all the evidence, in fact, it's contrary to all the eyewitness testimonies of what happened to Jesus. It's based on a single source that was written six hundred years after Jesus with no contact with eyewitnesses. Um, it's ad hoc because, as I explained, it's a supernatural explanation because it has no evidence and, in fact, is contrary to the evidence. It appears like it was made more to rescue Islam than it was to rescue Jesus. So for these reasons, I just cannot accept this theory. Shabir uh, challenged the reports of Jesus' resurrection, but in my judgment, the considerations he presented are much too weak to support his conclusions. Um, granted, he's an excellent communicator, but when you come down to presenting an argument for your case, you have to do more than just um, be very tactful in the way that you present. You've got to give some evidence. So it's, it's kind of like going to buy a car, and you look at the car, and it's, it's just been freshly washed and waxed, and the engine's been steam cleaned, and it's been detailed on the inside. But when you take it for a test drive, the engine sputters, and the transmission slips. Folks, don't buy it. Um, we've seen that there is strong evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and when we add that it's the only plausible explanation for the data, I think we can conclude with a high degree of confidence that this event actually occurred in history. I guess I'd like to close with just saying, quoting from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. When, it, when I saw The Passion, I've seen it twice so far, I love the movie, and I, I realize that some literary license was taken in that, but overall, I find it fairly accurate. And for me, the most touching scene in the entire movie is when Jesus stumbles and falls, and Simon has to come and help him, but he's, or not yet, I'm sorry, but he stumbled and he fell, and his mother came and ran to him, and he says, behold, I make all things new. And then you watch his face as he picks the cross up and looks forward and marches ahead. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising or caring little for its shame. He loved all of us in this room, in this world, so much that it was a joy that was set before him. No, he didn't enjoy all the, the torture and the brutal pain and everything, but he realized that the reward for all of this is that 
the bridge was now built for us to have a personal and intimate relationship with God. And I thank Jesus Christ for this. Praise be his name. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. That was a wonderful conclusion uh, to our discussion here tonight. I don't know if I can add much more to that. I want to conclude by thanking you again for agreeing to have this debate with me, even though, as you said, uh, you had some hesitation. I'm glad your prayers were answered to, uh, to let us have this. And uh, Gordon, I thank you for organizing it all, for making it all possible, for hosting me. I want to thank you folks uh, as well, uh, all of you who might be involved in some way and uh, folks at the Islamic Center today who uh, hosted me for a talk and, uh, and uh, provided lunch for me today. Uh, and everyone who has in some way uh, um, been hospitable, I want to thank my friend David Wood who contributed to my education in some way by assisting me to see the movie The Passion. And um, uh, I want to conclude by thanking all of you folks as well for listening to me patiently. I know after 9-11, it has not uh, been easy to, to uh, listen to anything about Islam, especially if you live in the United States of America and you're wondering why do they hate us. And I want to assure you that uh, uh, not all Muslims are alike. We're not all to be fitted into a single stereotype. I may look Saudi Arabia, uh, but uh, uh, I am from uh, another part of the world, as Gordon pointed out. And I think if we listen to each other and we uh, have this kind of exchange, then we will be able to bridge uh, understandings between us and uh, we will have progress uh, and we will have less violence in the world. Certainly we need the world to be a safer place for all of us. I myself fly a lot uh, delivering speeches. Uh, I go across the Atlantic many times and I want the airlines to be safe as well. So we all have our job to do in promoting a better understanding, a more peaceful world. We keep praying to God that uh, through the teachings of his great uh, messengers and prophets such as Jesus and others, uh, peace would uh, be more prominent in the world. As for our topic tonight, uh, I have tried to, first of all, face my own bias to acknowledge it and then try to get it out of the way. Um, and how successful I was at that is up to you to judge. I, Mike does not feel I was quite successful. Uh, but what I've tried to say is that uh, as a Muslim, I already uh, do not have a pre-conditioning uh, to, to um, see the evidence for the resurrection in the same way as Mike does. Because for one thing, I would not appreciate the cross as, as uh, a, a remission for my sins. And I would see the justice of God as being served just by God forgiving those he, who are contrite of heart and, and uh, humble in spirit before him. And if we repair the wrongs uh, that we have done to others. Uh, and uh, I have uh, tried to look at uh, the claim that Jesus rose from, from the dead. And I've said that the Quranic depiction is a little bit different, and because of that too, I would uh, have some hesitation in taking the gospel accounts as they are. I would believe that God re rescued Jesus and raised him uh, somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, in some way that Muslims do not need to prove, just that we do not have to prove that God exists in order to believe in him. It's a matter of faith. But on the other hand, I've listened to Mike and other apologists who have said that in fact they have to prove it. Uh, because they can believe it if they want, but if they're unable to prove it, then what has happened here is that they're locked into a logical uh, trap where they have asserted that the crucifixion of Jesus actually disproves Jesus, proves that Jesus was a blasphemer, a false messiah, that he was a curse of, under the curse of God. 
Now, skeptics have said, well, miracles do not happen. God would not raise a person from the dead. But Christians say, but God exists and God does raise people from the dead. But that depends on the assumption that God would want to raise this person from the dead. And here's the logical difficulty. So we cannot assume that God would want to raise a blasphemer from the dead. Now we go to history and we say, okay, well, uh, it is certain that he died on the cross. It is certain that his tomb was empty. It is certain that he appeared to his disciples. But I've shown that in the earliest stratum of evidence, it is not clear that the, that the proponents were saying that the tomb was empty. This seems to be a later bit of evidence that came to occur in the Gospels after Paul had already proclaimed the re resurrection of Jesus. That the earliest resurrection proclamations did not necessitate a physical bodily resurrection, did not necessitate an empty tomb. And that the later gospel writers tried to prove that Jesus reappeared to his disciples by improving the story. So that in Mark, there is no actual appearance. In Matthew, there is. In Luke, there is more. And in John, there is more still. And uh, the more we go along from, Luke, uh, from Matthew to Luke to John, the more physical the appearances uh, uh, go. And this was John Donne's point, that the, these gospels say that, not necessarily that the earliest disciples of Jesus believed that. And uh, I do not see that Mike has actually refuted this main point and showed that uh, there is not an evolution among the gospels. Once we understand that, we're not picking and choosing from among the gospels at whim, but we're laying the gospels beside each other and we're studying them carefully, pericope for pericope, each episode by each episode, to find out which were the earliest strata, and that is more certainly historical than the later developing uh, legends that come to go with it. And I've shown that just as Mel Gibson has taken a certain literary license and read things into the story from the Old Testament, the New Testament writers have done the same thing. They did not necessarily record what historically happened to Jesus, but they recorded sometimes what they thought should have happened because it seems to be prophesied so in the Old Testament. So Mel Gibson has the serpent in the garden because he knows from Genesis that the Son of God will crush the head of the serpent. And uh, so he says, he shows us it's happening. Uh, the gospel writers, in a similar way, knowing that crucified persons were nailed, have Jesus nailed. They know that was scourged, have Jesus scourged. So all of the worst scenarios they have put together to show that Jesus, in fact, was actually physically dead. But the earliest strata, like in Mark's gospel, for example, shows that there was a doubt that Jesus actually died on the cross. Pilate doubted this, but Pilate, of course, had an interest in saving Jesus. So was the centurion working under Pilate and perhaps other of his cohorts as well. And so I think the, the best solution to this that would make sense to both Muslims and Christians is that in some way, God miraculously rose Jesus, even though the enemies thought they had killed him, their purpose was not satisfied, but God's purpose, is, in fact, is what was satisfied. And after all, we do not have to prove that Jesus rose from the dead in this miraculous manner. We don't have to prove that Jesus uh, was rescued from death, because Muslims do not believe his death was the death of an accursed person. If he did die, he, he died under false accusations from others who are under the curse of God or can be under the curse of God for their false way of dealing with Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus' teachings are self-evident and they're still with us. In the reconstructed Gospel of Q, for example, we have beautiful sayings of Jesus which are still found in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. We have the prayers which uh, tells us to forgive others and to ask God to forgive us as we forgive those who sin against uh, others. Uh, we have the, the teachings that say, love your enemies as you, uh, uh, and what do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus was a great man. 
and uh, his entrance into Jerusalem, historians think, was under the, the certain knowledge that he would be uh, put under crucifixion or that he could be crucified. His bravery in entering Jerusalem is an inspiration uh, for all uh, religious reformers who want to do something good, who want to bring about change and are facing heavy obstacles. The idea of taking your cross up and following Jesus does not mean taking a physical cross, but it means bearing dangers for the sake of what is good. That is an inspiration both for Christians and for Muslims, for all people who would read the story of Jesus and reflect on him. I do not believe that the greatness of Christianity hinges on the, on the, on the crucifixion and resurrection, nor do I believe this was the central teachings of Jesus. It was Paul who made it so. But if we go back to the earliest teachings, we find Jesus' teachings to be an inspiration uh, for everyone, and I want to continue to be inspired by these teachings and hope that you would be too. I believe that these teachings have culminated in the final revelation which Muslims believe in in the Quran, and uh, it is that uh, by which I am committed to live, and I want to thank you again. the first part of that summary right I guess we resolved the debate Jesus did rise from the dead we're just not sure he was crucified that maybe that's the next uh, next question where there seemed to be the significant difference but uh, again agreement although what that resurrection means or from what I guess is, is where there's a significant difference